Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everybody. It's Austin here. Just wanted to give you a heads up and a content warning for discussion of sexual violence. Uh, we get into the Antonio Brown story today from about... Uh, minute, I guess one hour and 52 minutes through two hours and seven minutes and kind of the, the final big topic of the week. Um, uh, so uh, just so you know that that is coming up, uh, we, we signal that we're about to go into that conversation. Um, and uh, so you'll have another heads up then. Um, and that time might be a little bit different based on how long the ad runs. Uh, and I can't know how long the ad runs because of programmatic ads. Uh, so again, that is from 1.52 to 2.07. Uh, all right. Thanks. Oh, hello. You found Waypoints, where the Waypoint staff and friends take a break to nerd out and deep dive on the culture, art, and entertainment, and increasingly sports, that have been inspiring <laughs> and provoking us lately. That's cool. Uh, in the second half of this show, we've got an impromptu football segment that recorded after Monday's pod and decided to turn into the last block of this week's Waypoints. Uh, up front, there's a content warning on that segment because we talk a bit about the sexual assault allegation against Antonio Brown. I think we may refresh that warning before we hit that segment. You may hear something from Austin. Uh, between those blocks, uh, but be advised that the NFL segment does go go in some more serious territory. Uh, but first, we're going to keep it light here. We're going to talk about serial killers. Uh, we've we've <laughs> yep. been into other things this week. Uh, Austin suggested uh, jokingly that we should talk about Mindhunter, and it turns out that just about all of us have checked that series out. It's and true. I just walked uh, Denny Villeneuve's 2016 science fiction film Arrival. But first, gather around the table. This week, we've got. Danielle Riendo. Hi, hello. Austin Walker. That's me. I'm here. <laughs> I'm, I'm here. <laughs> and Kato's watching the signal. So, uh, Austin, let's just dive into Mindhunter. Okay, uh, real let's quick. Do it. Yeah, I was. I had missed that you were that you had. I you gotten into this. I binged it. I so I went home. You know, I was off for a couple weeks there, and I went home to see some family. And we, I arrived to find that my step father had watched all of the second season of Mindhunter without having seen the first. <laughs> uh, and he just like, it was just, uh, you know, Netflix, it gets you sometimes. Um, there's like a whole other side conversation I could have about how like five years ago, my stepdad didn't know what a computer, like how to use a computer. <laughs> and now he's just like, yeah, I just want, you know, I'm on Netflix, I'm on Amazon, like um, blah, 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 blah. Uh, it's very funny. Um, but he, he was in the middle of watching it. My mom had already watched both seasons. Um, and so had seen uh, all of the first season when it first came out and then had seen the second season when it came out and then had rewatched, was rewatching the second season, or was oh. rewatching the first season with my with my stepdad. Uh, and I was like, oh, what if I just start from season one? Because I've heard it's okay. Uh, I was curious. So it was one of those things. I was like, ah, you know, I have an image in my head of what this show is. And 
I've liked those in the past. And mm. and when I say those, what I really meant was um, procedurals about uh, profilers, right? Uh, the, the big ones that come to mind that are like – there are very pulpy, very kind of like mass market ones in the kind of criminal minds design. There are ones that uh, take a prestige aura about them like Hannibal. Oh, yes. uh, Hannibal is like the one that that especially for the first couple of seasons blends this overarching plot with the week to week procedural like uh, profile stuff. Really what I thought it was going to be was going to be like the spinoff to Criminal Minds that had – God, who was in it? I want to say Forrest Whitaker, um, where, oh, he he's uh, – Hannibal does a little bit of this too, where it's like, ah, this guy, he gets he gets serial killers. He understands how to profile them because he walks the line. He's right up against the edge. <laughs> and I was like, I bet it's bad, but I'll watch it. It has like some some talent attached to it. I know that David Fincher is like on board and in, he has directed a few episodes and has like a creative credit in some way. Um, so it looks like he may be actually even more involved than that. It's not cl- – yeah. So like the thing is like he's not the showrunner, but he – But he might be the showrunner. Uh, I don't Shadow showrunner? Or just like is it, a, is it a firm production credit where it's like he's there as like a creative lead in a creative yeah. lead capacity? So I was looking into this a little bit because to a degree, Mindhunter, like the question of authorship seems completely obscured here. Yes. Um, because like in my notes, as I tried to pin this down, like he is listed as an executive producer. So, so is Charlize Theron. Mm-hmm. Uh, the creator, Joe Penhall, uh, has that credit. They brought in a number of uh, screenwriters, uh, Jennifer Haley, Aaron right. Levy, right. and Carly Rae. But then there is an interview where at least for season one of Mindhunter, uh, Fincher is there saying that like at a certain point they just weren't happy with the way things were coming together Mm. and he kind of ran the writer's room for that first season so it could be one of those things where this is kind of a uh, creative ship of theseus in some ways and it may not actually be fair to ascribe any one vision to this because by necessity it may be a lot of different uh, people's contributions sort of mingling here. That is what it uh, feels But I would say like early Mindhunter is definitely a Fincher thing. Yes. I mean, he directs the early episodes, sure. sets the tone. Uh, yeah. and, and I will say coming off of seeing that the first episode, I realized I and mean, then you know, even just seeing Fincher's <coughs> excuse me, just seeing Fincher's name there was this moment where I was like oh, th- this is not a Hannibal, this is a Zodiac. Right. Yes. Um, yes. This is not going to be, and eventually, like this becomes the the point of the of the of the work. I think is to lure the audience into the belief of profiling, the belief in profiling, the belief that we can figure this out, and then riddle it with doubt and and complication. Um, and when it's at its strongest, it is when it is doing both of those things in the same episode, yes. making you feel like something maybe magical is happening here, that there is a way to access the interiority of others. Um, and then cutting that apart because you're showing the – uh, political uh, machinations that get involved. You're showing the biases that the best people at this fail to address or fail to to uh, account for. You're showing the ways in which some violence uh, is overdetermined, has multiple causes, uh, is not just reduced to one thing. You're showing the ways in which police just want to fucking close cases. Um, uh, and it, it is 
a really well-made show, and it's doing a bunch of different things. I left it pretty happy with it. It, it, I'm very curious to see where it goes from here. Um, I guess I haven't done a great job of explaining what this show is. I don't know if someone else wants to stop me from talking to say, yeah, (laughs) Kata raised his hand. Like, what is this show? What? No. Uh, I guess... (laughs) It is, um, for you, Kato, it is... No, I, I've... Oh, you've seen it. Well, the first five episodes. Okay. I'm getting We there. should probably also see where people are at it. Did I'm everybody through finish season it? two. Yeah, me too. Rob? I'm only halfway through season one. Okay. Okay, I got you. Okay. Um, so then there's a lot that... I will talk about themes in season two then a little bit without giving yeah. particular beats. Uh, the, the premise of the show is that, uh, you know, in... Uh, Today, we think of serial killers as a thing that exists, as a category of criminal. There was a time before that sort of categorization, that that sort of uh, label existed. Um, And you thought of people who maybe killed a bunch of folks, but there wasn't this kind of boilerplate term. And so the show digs into the kind of... Uh, time period where the FBI, which has a behavioral science department, or has like a research it's sort of starting that. Yeah, like yeah. there, there is um a unit, the, the creation of that unit, uh, which part of the time goes around to teach very basic kind of um, ways of thinking about criminology and and the way criminals think, quote unquote, to police across the country. Uh, and the other half of it is this this one, you know. Uh, uh, cop who is a he's not he's not just a cop he's like he's an fbi dude he's like a he's a teacher is what he actually was he 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 taught criminology um realizing that you might be able to learn something by speaking to the people who've committed crimes uh and specifically killers particularly these people who the rest of society wants to not look at at all right um and so the series is split between these people eventually investigating certain crimes and also interviewing uh, serial killers and figuring out what it means to be a serial killer. The key, the three main characters are this kind of like young rookie cop whose name I'm now forgetting because it's been a few weeks since I since I've seen the show. Uh, uh, what? You, you, Holden. One of them, Holden. Yes. The it's other Holden, one's Kemper. Holden and Tench. Tench and and is Kemper the right? Kemper's the 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 Anator? killer. No, Kemper. Yeah, Kemper oh, is God. the killer. Ted, Ted Tench. Woo! Tench Ed is Ken. the so. Holden for no Kemper is like the third buddy. That's the, the, the weird thing opening, about the, the show in season one. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, you have Holden Ford, who is the yeah. special agent, who is like gung ho, who has this instinct that there's something to learn here, who knows how to get people talking. A lot of the episodes have have him finding the ways to open the serial killers who he's speaking to up to sharing what their thought process was. Um, and, and as a note. He's doing a lot of this at a time period where no one thought there was a thought process. Right. Where again and again the show hammers home the the fact that when he talks about this process to other people in the FBI and other people in uh, police, you know, in in police departments across the country, they're grossed out by the idea that you would – like some people are just bad, aren't they? Some people are just born bad. And and that question is like at the heart of the show because of how much – how bad these crimes are often make you want to retreat to this sort of like to totalizing that's just a bad person. Very black and white kind of mm-hmm. thinking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, and then over the course of the next of that, the first season, the second season, the show ends up circling around two or, or this group of three characters, Holden Ford, Bill Tench, who is his like partner, in, uh, who is uh, another teacher, another person who, who uh, 
understands behavioral psychology in a way the rest of the, the feds don't, but is also kind of just like old school about everything. He's Harvey Bullock. He's He is Harvey yeah. Bullock, 100%. <laughs> he's got a crew cut. He's got a crew cut. He's The thing I love about him is he he's that guy who, if you've ever been in a professional role where you see someone who was ahead of the curve 10 years ago. Yes. But now has become like, oh, he's just one of the guys. He's just like, he's part of the infrastructure. He's part of the system. Yeah. He's replicating the things that, you know, maybe he pushed things in a positive direction, right? Five, 10 years ago, Tench is the guy who got people saying maybe there's more to bad guys than they're bad guys. But he isn't quite at the point yet where he wants to talk about psychology or deal too directly with academia. The third super important character is Wendy Carr, who's played by Anna Torv, yes. uh, who is a, uh, a lesbian uh, and who in season two, her queer relationships end up being a huge, huge, huge focal point. Yes. Uh, in fact, I think season two is so much more about Tench and Carr than it is about – uh, Ford, which is yes. a, a relief in some ways. <laughs> I, I think so. I think a massive relief. Yeah. yeah. And not to, to just to go off that point. Please, no. And I won't, I won't spoil anything, but vaguely, the fact that the show pays a lot more attention to her, her relationships, and also the emotional labor that she, she does. so much. Especially in the first few episodes is, my God, I, I really, uh, well, of course I did. I really related to her and also... Uh, there's a lot about class in queer relationships that happens in that season that is phenomenal. Yes. It's it's not easy to watch in some cases, but it is really well done and really, really interesting to kind of see, especially in this is like 1980, 79, 80, it's 81. It's late 70s, season yeah. one, season two is, eight, I want to say. 80? Uh, well, we, we can know because. We can figure it out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's can, a real life thing. There's a real life thing <laughs> that, that was really bad. Uh, yeah. uh, the, the second season deals a lot with the, the children, uh, the, the death of, I don't even want to say the number because to some degree, really, the degree to which, yeah. uh, the killings go on is a question if you don't know about the real killings, yeah. but, but I will say dozens of children who were killed in Atlanta over the 1979 to 1981 period, um, is the one of the, and, and like, how do you, is there a single killer there? Do you, how do you crack that? Uh, and more importantly, how does the community how was the community already working towards that end? And how are these fucking helicopter feds coming in to save the day actually yeah. intersecting with local concerns? Extremely. Um, yeah. uh, I should say Wendy Carr, the, the character that is the, the lesbian woman, uh, is uh, an, a, a full-time psychologist. She is like from academia. Yes. She knows what the fuck she is talking about. And she is driven to do something with the science. Yes. Um, and to get access to people who have done things that only someone with her expertise has the interest in talking talking to to begin yeah. with. And to make sense out of or to make some kinds of connections with. Totally. Yeah. Um, She's I, great. I realized I, I was like I've been this whole time looking for all my notes, and I realized I had them on my phone, not on my <laughs> computer, because Fair. I was hanging out with my parents and didn't want to bring my computer out to write down notes while Here I was watching things. <laughs> yeah. Um, Rob, I'm curious for you as someone who does have that Fincher love, how this strikes you as like neo noir almost in, in points. If you've gotten that deep in yet, because there are moments where it reads like neo noir to me. Yeah, I think. Season one, at least, is such a strange show. Um, so my partner and I often run into a problem where we got really into Broadchurch for a while. Uh, but Broadchurch is a series that, first of all, they are very procedural, but like each case is its own season. And mm -hmm. it's a really like deep dive into this one case. Um, 
we've just started watching Fortitude, which is a similar kind of like murder in a really isolated small town where nothing bad ever happens. But what does it mean when suddenly the social con- the social compact is broken in the most serious and unforgivable way possible in a community that that seemed impossible? We run into problems with shows like that because my partner tends to find them eventually get they get really stressful and mm-hmm. intense and that emotional pitch becomes a bit of a grind for her. Whereas for me, I tend to be a little bit more like, Ooh, such compelling drama. Fascinating. (laughs) Um, But what's interesting to me is that she's actually got much more of a taste for Mindhunter because for her, it is a brainy buddy cop movie Mm -hmm. in some ways. And it's a story about like scientific discovery. Yes. Or at least the, or, or at least scientism, uh, scientism uh, (laughs) applied to. Go ahead, Rob. Sorry. I did not. Yeah, no. So, so no, I mean, it's just this, this scientism applied to resolving questions that maybe the science is not actually equipped to resolve. That is one of my favorite things in the show um, is how messy the moments of quote unquote discovery and especially the moments of cataloging and and uh, and naming are. There are these great scenes in the first season where Holden Tench and Carr are in a room and they will be trying to figure out what to call a type of killer. Is this an organized or a disorganized killer? Is this a um, there's some other there are some other they pretty much have a whiteboard. They have a whiteboard with all <laughs> yeah. these different categories. And there's a scene fairly early on, I want to say where they get to certain there's a there's a certain uh exchange around what should we call this thing what should our taxonomy be uh and sometimes they'll get to a word that's the right word um again i can't remember what the one was for organized the the original one that they had they're like oh it's it's this thing and it's like yeah but what's that mean to a beat cop it's like oh Let's use organized and disorganized then. And like in this moment, these three people have settled this debate around how to categorize other people uh, because of a rhetorical need, not because they're accessing some scientific truth. And that style of decision making happens constantly. And it's never – it it is – you're learning how the sausage is made in some way or they're they're willing to show you the sausage making. Uh, And it turns out the sausage making is messy and it's well-intentioned, and it is fucked up sometimes. Yeah. Um, and none of it is tested, right? Like, Wendy's uh, big thing that she hits again and again is, like, the people who do these interviews don't stick to the instrument. Um, as a, a through line throughout the entire show is that Holden can get these killers talking. Uh, they can they'll talk about their childhoods. They'll talk about what they do in the process of killing people. They'll talk about like everything uh, around around the sex acts that they per- that they perform. There, it's like we'll get you to open up about some gross shit. Uh, uh, and to do it, he leaves the instrument. He right. leaves the prepared questions that have been approved, and that Carr, as a doctor, knows like these are the things that we need to have universalized so that we can judge these answers comparatively between different people. Yeah. Um, and that is like a, a point of contention and it does it does a good job of not necessarily making her seem like naggy or bitchy about or it. Pedantic or, or pedantic like which that. which shows have done in the past with that style, yes. right? Um uh I think it does that stuff really well. Well, I think what I really love about this show is that to me, like we came straight off of Zodiac into this, like Zodiac had wet our appetite for this. And Mm -hmm. we're like, I was like, well, you know, like he like Fincher goes back into the serial killer thing with from a slightly different angle with Mindhunter. And so it was like sold. Let's let's dig in. 
And I think it becomes a fascinating companion piece, at least this first season. Maybe mm-hmm. season two begins to evolve away from that. But the opening of season one definitely feels like it is in dialogue with Zodiac. Uh, because Zodiac is kind of two movies. Mm-hmm. One is a for, sort of more dry procedural of the first phase of the case when the Zodiac killings were ongoing. And then the second half is after the case has gone cold and um, the Jake uh, Gyllenhaal character is trying to now basically solve it on his own time and he's become obsessed with it. And I've talked about it on this show before, I think. Uh, One of my favorite moments, and I think this is basically Fincher speaking through a character, is when he revisits Robert Downey's character in Mm -hmm. Zodiac, who basically burned out on the case and disgraced himself but also had other issues that were cooking in the background all along. And for the Gyllenhaal character, this is where it all went wrong for Downey's character. Uh, You know, this is the case that broke him. And he goes and uh, hooks up with with Downey's character at some point and starts asking about it. And, uh, you know, this old reporter that Downey's playing doesn't want to talk about it. And he finally just says, this didn't mean that much in the grand scheme of things. Like, In terms of the, like, some human tragedy that unfolds in the Bay Area on a daily basis, the Zodiac killings weren't even a blip. Um, And yet we devoted all all these resources, all this energy trying to figure out what was happening here. And meanwhile, we don't even consider problems that affect far more people, right? The analogy he uses is is freeway deaths. Nobody cares about that, even though, like, more people die on the freeway uh, every day than... From the Zodi- the entire you know zodiac uh, sequence, so we go from that into and, and the rest of Mindhunter, I think is basically him trying to impose this narrative, trying to create some version of this uncomfortable open ended story that happened he 's trying to impose some kind of order where he can put it down where he can feel like he solved it somehow. And the, so the opening rest of, of Mind the rest of Zodiac, you mean, is that yes. the rest of, yeah, 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 yeah yes. exactly yes, yes, and the opening of Mindhunter is very much about this. It's the 70s, mm-hmm. and there is this feeling, not just in the air, but also among a lot of the cops that uh, we, we, we speak to, that the society has slipped its moorings a little bit. Uh, that there's just something different about this era than what we all grew up with. We are mm-hmm. confronting evil that we didn't really think was possible on a really personal and intimate and psychological scale, and we can't explain it. And one of the real motivators for Ford is this idea that it's not just that he wants to understand serial killers to a degree. The, the, the opening pitch of the show, the thing that, re, that really intrigues him, and it's what people pick up on him and spook, it, it is the thing that spooks them yes. about Ford, is that he wants to solve like crime, modern human nature? Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. You know, have you played well, the Have you played Pathologic? Uh, either of you? The, sadly, the, no. So no. Pathologic has this character called the the Bachelor, who's a young doctor, and his the thing he wants to solve as a doctor is uh, death. Yeah. That's the thing he wants to figure out, and I get that from and like because of that, he has this degree of like 
like distance between him and every character that he speaks to in that game because he's constantly looking for a solution to a problem that everyone else just has to fucking live with. Yeah. And that that is Holden 100%. Every conversation that he has, he is trying to instrumentalize it. Uh, he is constantly profiling everyone in his life. There are key, key moments in both seasons oh, where yeah. he slips into profiler mode instead of just being a like a partner a or a friend or yeah, a, yeah exactly um, or or a teacher right like a key thing early on in that season is I mean, one he was a hostage negotiation teacher but then he becomes this kind of uh, like early Jesus that first scene I know yeah totally. I know right uh, I mean, I'd, I'd only remembered it when you just mentioned this uh, then you mentioned the opening is is a, is a hostage negotiation gone bad um, the the uh, as he's a teacher he will he will forget. The stuff that Tench knows intuitively, again, the kind of Harvey Bullock, you know, work a day cop. Yeah. Uh, he he forgets that, like, it's hard to step into a room filled with anybody, but especially people who have convinced themselves that they are the people who determine what law and order look like and overturn that with by talking about something you heard from a serial killer. Uh, a term that they don't even that doesn't even exist yet. Yeah. Uh, at the time, I think he's calling them sequence killers still. Sequence killers. Yeah, yeah. totally. Um do you have another question, Rob, or another statement? No, I was just I, I was just thinking the, the other part is that he doesn't know what he doesn't know. And I think in mm. some ways what makes him compelling is he's very much sort of TED Talk brilliant in the way our <laughs> period uh, has become really familiar with. Where like Tench is a guy who had good ideas and you get the sense got frustrated in the, in the institution and just kind of gave up on trying to advance his work. Like mm-hmm. not only was he ahead of the curve, but people didn't want to know that the curve was even there. And so like – he was useful because he was good, but he's kind of a little bit disillusioned, but also he has a healthy regard for workday police work. Um, Ford has that. I've had these smart ideas. <laughs> I haven't heard these smart ideas from other people. Therefore they must be wholly original. <laughs> and I am the smartest person for having them. Yep. And I think a lot of like most the, the difference between this and a lot of like procedural TV, right, is um, it's brilliant guy detective and detective lady skeptic, I think, <laughs> is the genre that it's d- described as in a network TV series. I think he would just be the brilliant, insightful, uh, you know, boy genius Wonderkin. solving yeah. solving uh-huh. crime. Yep. Yeah. Um, in this he face plants so many times because he doesn't know what he doesn't know and he constantly overestimates his abilities. There's this great scene where he starts kind of talking down to this group of rural cops yeah. and being like, let me tell you about this one case and how the, like out in California, how all the cops fucked it up. And like, I've basically figured it out. And one of the cops in that room worked the case in California and is like, dude, I was there. You don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. And it's this, and the reason he's in rural, like Kansas, I think, is because the case was so horrible. He was like, I need to get out of California yep. and go to, to small town police work. Mm-hmm. But it's this great moment that, like, dude, people who are doing your job, but like in Abilene, still might be really good. They still might like know things that you do not. The fact that you work at FBI headquarters doesn't necessarily mean that you're coming down from the mountain. And when he sort of holds out the certainty and then runs up against the limits of his knowledge and disappoints people, it's pretty brutal to watch. Totally. The second season does this even more and not only with the police. And that's part of the reasons why I think it's so strong. I think it's, yeah, a better 
overall season, personally. Yeah. Uh, I loved the first season. And I'll say, like, I binged both seasons. Yeah. Like, when the first one came out, I think maybe a week or two after, I just ran through it. And this second one, uh, it, it was only just a couple weeks ago, but yeah. I I could not stop. This was definitely a, yeah, just one more kind yeah. of thing. Because it was just so compelling. Even the workplace drama aspect. Totally. Uh, the so politics they of the, the, the workplace. Dude, they, the, yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the they, guy who's like basically inept, but really means well, but also and is also a homophobe. Is, and also is a homophobe <laughs> and was put there maybe through some nepotism. You yeah, know? probably uh, did, um, uh, which is yeah. extremely good. But I also. I, and the family drama also. That's, that's what about. I wanted to yeah, add yeah, in yeah. that, like, I think a, a very valid criticism of the first season, especially, and, and po- portions of the second season, but is that these characters. To some extent, I think Tench is a little bit more grounded in a lot of ways, uh, and that gets to be a major factor of the second season as well, a little bit later on. Uh, but these characters are sort of disconnected from the human suffering that they're, you know, their choice subject, especially things like Kemper, the buddy, mm-hmm. the almost like buddy dynamic with Kemper and how much they joke about, you know, Kemper, with, with a other who cops. Did ridiculously horrific, terrible, yeah. horrific. I think as someone bad, like capital B bad. I don't care how you feel about like the cops. I feel bad about the cops. I feel bad about Ed Kemper who did truly horrendous things to people. Exactly. And and, like these characters to some extent are like fascinated by him, probably discuss, you know, certainly disgusted on some level, but like just fascinated with their new toy. And the show did feel, I think in the first season, a bit disconnected from like, People fucking died, and it ruined a lot of lives. Like, it, it was really, really awful in a lot of ways. The second season well, does at least do something, I think, in a, in a pretty major way, a pretty yeah, major we'll narrative way, to bit. make yeah. you feel as if, like, okay, these fucking families matter, and the thing, the suffering they're going through matters, and it, it is tied into race, right. it is tied into yes, class, it is tied yes. into a lot of other systemic things that I think that it's good that that has a place. Well, and that Holden is not prepared for in any way who thinks he can come in and swoop in, save save the day, day, who announces himself multiple times Uh. in the second season as the white savior coming in. Mm -hmm. I'm the good one. I'm the one who cares. And and he's, you know, a thing that happens a lot in fiction uh, is that you have a villain who, I've said this phrase recently, diagnoses the problem and and then uh, overcorrects, right? It's like a classic way to set up a villain. Um, Holden is that in the sense that he uh, correctly diagnoses so many problems with the Atlanta case, which takes up the back half of the of the second season, uh, which is like the ways in which local police have been irresponsible. They've, they've failed to actually work with the local Do community. Do any real police work, the, yeah. the only people who know, like, were not able to put together the fact that m- multiple suspects knew each other, did no canvassing, did no basic investigation work. And he's right to make that analysis, but he's the one who overcorrects, who decides that he can run the show himself, who decides he can like pre you know predetermine who has killed the most of these people <laughs> in ways that are that are uh infuriating yeah. but yeah. also deeply honest um uh, and and in ways that that uh he he constantly lets down the people who are the actual ones who are suffering yeah. most directly right yeah i was wondering like in light of that Daniel, I'm curious if you find that this is also in dialogue with kind of the true crime boom, because the oh, Kemper yeah. stuff is the the Kemper stuff 
was already skirting a line that I was uncomfortable with. And and I think the show wants you to be uncomfortable because they get, they fall into this weird domestic routine. Like there's this long (laughs) sequence where he's making coffee. No, Kemper's making him coffee and being like, you want cream? You take sugar, right? And like, they're just kind of just like, it's, it's the two bros Twitter account. Honestly, Uh, yes. You know, (laughs) but then like Kemper will say something that reminds you like, Oh, these are like there is a level of criminal violence and like criminally disturbed behavior that Kemper is capable of that like the mind not only recoils but in some ways can't fathom. And what did concern me a little in season one was that a lot of this felt airless. That you were like, like Holden, you were in this room with Kemper and he's kind of like this sort of fascinating subject. And what gets, and I think that's how a lot of at least early true crime series tended to handle their subjects with, wow, what a crazy case. Let's, let's dig in. And what gets lost in that is that like, when you move out of the realm of the whodunit Mm -hmm. into true crime, you are getting into the realm of like sociology and then actual human pain and suffering. And I'm not sure season one is too interested in that, but did you did you find that like does season two begin to puncture some of the artificial bubbles we place around crimes and narrative fiction? I think it does both. I think it both is actually showing at least some sensitivity towards mm-hmm. victims, towards families, towards you know folks who have actually suffered. Like it shows much more interest in that. But it also sure does do some stunt casting with like showing Charles Manson. Like yeah, there's there are there absolutely are like, this that. Is, this season we're going to talk to the son of Sam, yep. Charles Manson. Yep. And meanwhile, in the background, BTK continues to develop. Exactly. Right. And like that is the yeah. because that has been uh, just to be clear the the plan for the show is five seasons that is about the capture of, of BTK eventually. And so like, BTK is already in season one as the the character who you see uh, during certain intros right. um, and then continues to play that role in season two and theoretically will go forward, um, which is so funny. Do, do you all know how the BTK killer was actually caught? No. It has nothing to do with profiling at all. It is a fluke. It is a, it is a technological trick. It is a... Like I don't even want, I don't want to... This is the thing that's fucked up. To your point, Rob, about true right. crime stories, it's like I no, am... So now, like, look... It's like, I don't spoil, want to spoil it because it. like it's history. I can Google it. This oh, you don't want to spoil it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he asks the, co- the he wants to send a message to the police. He says, "Can you determine where I'm from from a floppy disk?" They go, "Nah, definitely not." Yes, they absolutely can, <laughs> and they did, and they wow. got him through that, which is super interesting to me because there's a scene with the the the, the BTK killer in I want to say towards the end of season one yes. where he is like do, making copies or something. Yeah. It's in season two. Um, is that season two? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Uh, he's making copies at the at library. A, at, the, at the library. Or the university And or the something. Xerox yeah. machine breaks. Yep. And he's like freaked out about it. And it's like they are already planting the seeds that it is technological. It is his technological ineptitude, not some like super brilliant, you know, again, wunderkind yep. uh, profiler who cracks his, psych- his psychology. Yeah. Um, and that ends up being – I'm so excited for them to, to pay that off because the takeaway from the BTK is not – you know what? If, if our if our if we you know build the right instrument, we can finally predict crime. And like, it isn't that isn't what happened. It's like both ineptitude. It's ineptitude on both sides. Like yes. the ineptitude yes. of believing science and technology will fix all our problems from the cops, from the FBI, and also the guy who is you know frankly an idiot for not knowing. 
right. a, a fairly like. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I, I'm not here to judge the BTK. Nobody was a criminal mastermind, I, I suppose. I, I, is, the, is the point I'm trying to make? Neither one of these people are masterminds. They all look, think they yeah. are. You know. <laughs> you know, I hate the BTK killer. Waypoint <laughs> is canceled for text shaming the BTK killer. <laughs> It may have been what just happened. Um, the, Nobody's a mastermind. The, right. No one involved is a mastermind. There's no such thing as a mastermind. It I mean, exist. this is the, the bigger question for me ended up being while I was watching and I kept writing these notes and it was like, is this is this a fantasy of police competence, which is a classic thing that that drives a lot of folks, even folks who hate the police to like things that feature yeah. police. Yeah. Right. Uh, let me. There, there are a lot of black folks who love bad boys. Obviously, <laughs> right? Uh, there are there are a lot of of uh, uh, people who have suffered at the hands of law enforcement who like cop shows, who like detective stories. Um, th- that happens, and part of it is uh, sometimes talked about as the fantasy of competent policing. Ah, fuck! What if the cops were like this instead of like like fucking harassing me on my way to fucking work? Like yeah. this is a version of, of policing I can get behind. But I don't think that's what this is. And in, and then I thought for a little bit. Ah, this is a fantasy of police improving themselves. It's it's a fantasy of here are all the ways that the police are. Maybe they don't get to competence, but they but they are reflective. They are there are things moving around inside to push them into a good direction. But then throughout season 2, not only do, do they hit brick walls, you find again and again that the reason for quote unquote progress is politics, is ca- lowercase p politics is Hey, let's get someone new in charge down there who really understands like the uh, the way to capitalize on what on what those guys down in the basement are doing with this behavioral science shit. Like, oh, I, you know what? Uh, the the president just had a speech about about how we could stop killers. We should sh- we should move money into this department to show that we align with the president. Oh yeah, someone's cousin's getting uh, assigned to this. That style of yep. decision making is what aligns with progress in the sense that uh, whatever's new and, and shiny can get attention when it uh, when it is connected to so it is not a fantasy of police improving themselves either i, I think it's a i think it's a well, fantasy of transparency it's a fantasy of what if we knew why things happened <laughs> yeah well, right except, except it's holden's fantasy though i yes, think that's the thing yes, is, like, what i've seen in the yes. show is like it like in zodiac they're not actually solving the the central question that animated all this is not going to be solved over the course of the show. Mm-hmm. Like, and their ability to predict is going like, there's going to be moments where it seems miraculous, but there's also going to be moments where it just fucking fizzles. And then they're like, well, damn, we just need to improve the, the, the theory. But like, what if the theory just doesn't like, what if it just has no predictive use at right. which point, you know, you've got, you don't have something of much utility, but what you're saying there, Austin reminded me of, um, Something I found super revealing and weird. Do you remember when Obama sat down to interview with David Simon? Yes. About The Wire. Mm-hmm. Uh. And it was fascinating to me watching how Obama interpreted The Wire. Yeah. And the way he wanted to talk about The Wire. Which was, and I think I think this was a case of Simon maybe being a little bit starstruck and not like explaining his work to the president. But... <laughs> Like Simon also sort of grants this premise in the interview that what the wire shows is that like really thorough community oriented policing and thorough investigation of crimes and uh, mapping criminal networks can materially uh, like 
damage criminal organizations and improve crime rates in cities rather than focusing on low-level street busts. Mm-hmm. And Obama was like, yes, that, exactly. I love that. <laughs> and I'm like, that is a very strange thing to take away from The Wire. Uh-huh. <laughs> because The Wire is one-third about that. Like, like they absolutely do great police work through exactly that kind of systematic and thoroughgoing uh, police work. But even on that team, they have cops who are constantly fucking up or going rogue. Um, And... What, what's the dude's name? The the, the idiot. Doze, Herc. Yeah, Herc. Herc, Herc and uh, yeah. Carver. Is that oh, his yeah. the guy Herc. who became a teacher, right? No, no that's Pres Belusky. No, the, oh right. Pre, but Pres too is but the season I mean, one. Like, Pres too. at least yeah. realizes he's a yes. Herc, he realizes he's through. a bad cop. Is yeah. an asshole. Yep. I think he's going to become a private cop eventually. Anyway, he does. Yeah. yeah. Yep. But so the the thing is, like, even there on this elite police like investigative unit. They're still bad cops and they still do disastrous things that don't help anyone, hurt the case, hurt the community. Um, And then it's all against this backdrop of you're still just playing whack-a-mole until you begin addressing these structural factors that drive all of this. And this is the part that, like, you know – just doesn't come up quite as much in that, that Obama interview where it's like, damn, you know, we just need, we just need to run more wires. We need to, we need to get more, uh, you know, uh, McNulty's out there on, on, on the streets and more uh, Freeman's out there on the street and Daniel's, but that's not really it. It's all of those efforts will go for naught if the city government is still corrupt and sclerotic and uninterested in addressing real problems if marginalized communities still feel completely abandoned and invisible to uh, their civic institutions. And this is like one of the things in The Wire. But you can look at The Wire and see this as a fantasy of, damn, like, if only we get some really, like, really good police on this case. If if we get the good police to, to, to run wires and weirdly... If only more crooks were like Stringer Bell, uh-huh. we, could really, uh-huh. we could really clean uh-huh. these streets up. If only, if only more quarterbacks like, were like Eli Manning. Uh, <laughs> right. And it's like, and, and, and also it's like, dude, like Stringer Bell is just a sackler who didn't inherit. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, that's like we, we the, 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 the stringers are already here. The, the difference is we're so class locked. They don't there, there's not much mobility. But I think it's it's interesting in shows like this that people can look at them. And still end up taking away a really like copaganda message and say, ah, you know, this this shows that X, Y and Z is possible in the current framework of policing without even though the show is. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And even though the show is like flashing lights being like in The Wire's case, these problems go so far beyond uh, street level crimes. And Fincher, I think, being a little more. um abstract in his thinking in some ways is saying something begins to go wrong as the baby boomers take over America. Like, (laughs) like ultimately there's the, like what he's addressing is this weird sense of, uh, generational decline and, uh, sort of a moral decay that happens, uh, in the United States at some point. Mm -hmm. And then I don't know that it's the thing that works for me in this, in this show so well is that it is not a moral decay. 
it is a moral revelation that the decay was always there. Mm. It's it mm-hmm. is the hmm. it is mm-hmm. I, I, again season two is so much about this because it yeah. is about Atlanta yeah. as a boom town that is trying to keep white people in it and get white investment. Um, uh, it is it is that whole season ends up being about and it's not just that it is also about it is also about Tench and Tench's home life yeah uh, there's a, a huge central point of Tench's home life is about uh, his relationship with his wife and his son his son who is very quiet his son who very clearly uh, is being written to have the traits that the basement team putting together the behavioral psychology uh, department are attributing to young people who can grow up to become serial killers yeah. uh, and it doesn't one, I just want to be really clear. It does not play that for spectacle. Right. It actually plays that fairly well, very ambiguous. Um, and, and ambiguous is the right word here. And I think it's the same thing also with with uh, Wendy's relationships. Yes. The tensions that were here were always there, yes. but they were hidden so that we didn't have to confront the ambiguity and the fact that we didn't have easy answers. Uh, you know, b- black communities were always preyed upon. Uh, were always pushed to the side. They were always suffering uh, bad policing and and you know uh, the the effects of redlining and the effects of of having poor local resources themselves and all of these things. Um, electing a black mayor does not solve that, and yeah. the, the season two like makes that very fucking clear that that alone you don't just change a figurehead there. Um, and and it because of all that it isn't it. My intuitor doesn't read to me, and neither does Zodiac really, that there is a moral decline so much as there is a moment of confrontation with the amoral or with the or with the fact that like, oh shit, we can't keep our fucking heads in the sand anymore. And now what? Now that we know it's like this, there are people who want to put the the sheet back over, you know, the, the their heads in a, in a lot of well, cases. Well, in, in some very in some very, in some direct very, ways. In some very direct ways. <laughs> there are some people who want to put sheets over their heads, but who want to throw a sheet over the problem. And someone to go back to other. sleep. And someone to go, yeah, someone to go back to sleep. Uh, and someone to pull all the sheets off of everything and be like, no, motherfucker, look at all this stuff. But developing a second step from there is really hard. It's I, I was just talking about this on the, on the Beast cast a few weeks ago, this idea of like, all right, we have given up the grand narratives. We've given up the, we, we've decided that shit's bull, it's bullshit. The idea that some people are born wrong. The idea that some people are born to be killers or to be criminals, that they have a, they just have the criminal gene in them. That shit is, is caught up in a very particular, often very racist, often very, you know, queer phobic, uh, often, you classist. know, yeah, very yeah. classist. Absolutely. Like, oh, poor, poor birth. Oh, they, you know about their, about his parents, right? Uh, that's, that shit is, 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 in, is incorrect. Um, but because of that, because there's no one cause for the ills of the world, uh, you start to look or or rather because you don't want to look at causes that are systemic and there is no kind of like individualist cause for the ills of the world because it's not something wrong with, oh, that person, that individual was born this way. You end up kind of scrambling for something. Um, and this is a show of people scrambling for something and, Often seeing the terror, which is like, oh, no, it's rotted to the core. The whole system is fucked. I am not in the power to do that. So let me either you can do what Wendy does and like I'm going to be part of a bigger project. 
I'm going to put a, a brick in the wall of building a future, or you do what Holden does and say, and I'm going to be the one who finds the magical solution. I'm the architect. I'm the architect. Of this wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Exactly. I, want, I just briefly wanted to say without, again, without spoiling anything, that I think the Tench storyline does an amazing job with that sort of problem of evil yes. question yeah. in, again, subtle ways without really being gross about it or anything like that. I really do think this show has become more empathetic to human beings and suffering in this in the second season and this is saying I I also I really enjoyed the first season but I think the second season is more successful because it I think it gives more of a shit about human beings and like yes. how yeah. how they are interacting with the world and how they are trying to figure things out and how they are really confronting especially in Tench's case a, a genuine sort of problem of evil like in his face in his yeah. home yeah. in his own real like the closest held uh, beliefs that he has and in his life. And one last point I'll say about Tench uh, that I loved, a small note about this season, is how much he understands what's going on and how to play the game, even if he's getting very tired and very sick of the game. The way he knows he has yeah. to tell the gross stories oh, about the shoes, so about the, you know, the oh. things with Kemper, the way he knows he has to tell these fucking, you know, war stories to the cops to sell his vision, to get the money, to do the real thing is beautiful. <sighs> and I think like a really interesting sort of parallel with the, f the fifth season of The Wire of like, how do we get the resources to do what we think is right? We have to do these kind of gross things sometimes to like, I'm, I'm not, you know, yeah, yeah, I saying gotcha. either yeah, way yeah, with yeah. any of these things, but like showing people who know the game, how they have to play the game to hopefully do the right thing has been fascinating. Rob, I need you to see this. that shit because it's so, seeing uh, Ken fucking needed to like, not lick boots, but be the, the entertainer is so good. I'm yeah. so excited for you to get we to that We had stuff. the shoot. You know, well, like he, he knows yeah. the punchline. He knows yes. the, oh yes, my it's God. It's so good, Danielle. I it's fucking love it well, so much. Yeah. <laughs> the show's concerned with the presentation mm -hmm. of genius, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Like the, the, the creation of, uh, of insight and breakthrough where maybe none really existed. Yep. Um, <laughs> I man, I already loved Tench because there's a moment in season one where uh, Holden just gets completely blown up by their boss, <laughs> who is basically like, just go around the country, like do the fucking lectures and like stop rocking the boat. Like your research project is done. You need to stop messing around with this. And, you know, Tench sits with it for like five seconds and then, like, you can see him just sort of, like, realize, like, I got to go, like, deal with this. And he storms into his boss's office and, like, just tears into him and makes the case that, like, there is something here. This is worth this is work worth doing. And I know the kid sucks. I know, like, <laughs> like I, I know that, like, our team is a pain in the ass. But this is something that you need to put resources behind. And I'm putting a marker down. Like... I will not accept any result here other than you give us some form of support. And Tench knows he's going to get screwed in that deal. And he does. Like they, yep. they, they do get <laughs> to continue doing what they were doing. They're also basically banished bureaucratically uh -huh. yep. to, you know, the, the meta, the, the office equivalent of the, uh, like radar station in Alaska, <laughs> uh, is, is sort of where they're sent. Yeah. Um, counterpoint. This fall on Fox. Okay. Malcolm Bright is a gifted criminal psychologist using his twisted genius to help the NYPD solve crimes and stop killers, all while dealing with a manipulative mother, a serial killer father still looking to bond with oh his God. prodigal what son, and his constantly evolving neuroses. Bright's only ally is a sister, 
Ainsley, a TV journalist who wishes her brother would take a break from murder and have a normal life. <laughs> Unfortunately for his sister, the only bri- way Bright feels normal is by solving cases with the help of his longtime mentor, NYPD detective Gil Arroyo. Arroyo is one of the best detectives around, and he expects no less from his team, which includes Detective J.T. Tarmel, a born and bred New Yorker, oh. who questions whether Bright is a psychopath himself. <laughs> Prodigal Son, airing right. September 23rd. I think you on might Fox. be a psychopath yourself. <laughs> um, uh, I should note a very, Good. I mean, a very funny thing about all of this is the <laughs> where this all goes eventually is pop culture, right? Yeah. Holden is Holden's story. This is a fictionalized version of a thing that really happened, and it really happened to Johnny Douglas. Uh, John Douglas is the guy who would go on to be inspiration for Jack Crawford from Red Dragon, Silence of the Lambs, and Hannibal. Gotcha. Uh, he was the uh, the inspiration for James Gideon, uh, who is the lead character in Criminal Minds. Um, he is like the the go to like I have to write up the like a story of like a a criminal profiler. That's him, and he sold many books yep. about being a profiler. He has sold books about cases that he did not solve about like in, he he's written like inside the mind of the BTK. Like oh, the way this goes is commerce and culture. That is what profiling turned out to be best at is creating like detective characters for us. Compelling fiction. Like Thursday night drama. Yeah. And that's yep. an interesting, I really hope we get to, I really hope we get to someone wants to write a, a fictional book about James Holden. Yeah. That would be very, or not James Holden, uh, what, what's, whatever his first name is. Anyway, oh, that's, is, from, is the, that's from The Expanse. Oh, you're right. That is from The Expanse. <laughs> Different Holden. Holden Ford. Holden, Holden Ford. Ford. Yes, James Holden is but the, is, he yeah. also sucks yeah. a little bit. He also sucks it a kind of is like that yeah. guy, so, yeah, you know. A little bit. There's, no, there's an overlap. <laughs> also, is the one who has the, like, I have an idea that Shirley couldn't have occurred to anybody before. James James Holden's vision. What if the three factions of humanity just got along along. and worked together (laughs) instead of competing for resources? And and Certainly there's no political difference here, right? It's just... We just need to unite. We just need to broadcast uh, it all. We need to broadcast it all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is there another Expanse... Season coming? I think yeah. it did yeah. get renewed. Season yeah. four is it's coming. coming from Amazon. Okay, yeah. right. That's why it got picked up. It no, it was canceled renewed, by yeah. Sci-Fi. And then or Amazon, picked up, and then, rather. Yeah. Right. And apparently, like, by all accounts, like, Bezos is personally, like, he's a fan of these books <laughs> and liked the series. So, like, I don't know. I'm, like... There's a lot of reasons to dislike Jeff Bezos. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but if he blows the Expanse's fourth season budget through the roof. I can't. And like, I cannot do this. He I thinks James Holden's a smart it. guy. He does. You know, he's like, I mean, oh, that Jim Holden. He's pretty good. The great Shout out to the great Gundam <laughs> Project over at the Abnormal Mapping Patreon. But they pointed out recently that so, uh, uh, Bezos recently gave a talk that was like, we should all move. Well. Not we should all move to space. Not we all. Not we all. Uh, <laughs> one, we should move manufact. We should get actually. It was more like we should get people off of our beautiful planet. Uh, we should send manufacturing jobs to space. We should send just send people up there into these O'Neill space colonies, uh, which were pulled from uh, a a kind of nineteen seventies futurist manifesto of kind of we need to clean the earth by getting rid of the trash and getting manufacturing jobs out of here. 
Uh, and some of us can live in beautiful space colonies and some of us can live in manufacturing space colonies that all of which were literally the thing that uh, Tomino used for Mobile Suit Gundam's mm. dystopic space future that leads to revolution Good. and the death of literally half of all humans. And Jeff Bezos is literally here today being like, we should build the colonies from Gundam. Those are them. We <laughs> should build those. Oh uh, the ones that get dropped on Earth to that destroy huge chunks of the Earth. We should start building those. <laughs> Love it. Well, this is what was it the Renoir quote about like all war movies are pro war. Uh-huh, uh, right. I think all cyberpunk ended up being pro corp. Pro corp in some ways, oh, like in terms sad. of what people saw, like it was like fuck this rules. This this fucking rules. Man. Um, uh, last thing, this whole conversation has reminded me though, man. The the shield should probably loom larger in pop culture discourse mm-hmm. than it does mm-hmm. because it predates. I'm pretty sure it actually predates the wire. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, like might have started a year beforehand. And I think the rap that the shield ended up getting was it seemed so heightened at the time that like the wire was real. That was that was like real life on the streets. It's which is kind of Simon's entire trajectory. Yeah. Right. Like homicide, homicide was literally. Yeah. yeah. I think it was the but, same year. Did you know just you, you finish your shield thing? And we'll, I'll wrap back around. Yeah, so the shield super heightened. Uh, except the thing is, in retrospect, everything the shield said was basically proven correct. Like the shield centers on this elite anti-gang task force in the LAPD called the Strike Team, and all the like ridiculous criminal shit and capers they get up to. And at the time, it was like, okay, this is like taking the you know cops gone bad rogue cop thing way too far like turn it up to 11 and then like in the wake of what we learned about police in baltimore like fabricating massive amounts of evidence and planting uh guns on suspects uh the fact that anti-gang task forces basically around the country a lot of them have sort of been proven to eventually have gotten involved in organized crime in some way shape or form um and also the shield the shield has these two detectives, um, Dutch Boy oh, yeah. uh, and uh, Claudette Wims, who's played by the great uh, CCH Pounder, um, who are sort of the Holden and Tench of mm-hmm. the squad. And the Dutch Boy character thinks he, he so badly wants to be like a genius criminal profiler. And one of the interesting things about the series is he is a very good detective, but he's misled by his self-regard as often as he is, you know, he will make intuitive leaps that nobody else possibly could, but there is an episode where he thinks he's made an intuitive leap and he gets somebody killed because he cannot see the facts in front of his face because it's a, it's those are boring. His insight was exciting. So he chases that and someone ends up getting killed because of it. And like, it's just weird to me how often conversations of stuff, even to this day, it still feels a bit like, oh yeah, they're still basically covering plot beats from, uh, from the shield. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the thing I was going to bring up, you, you mentioned that, uh, you know, obviously before the, the wire, David Simon did homicide. Uh, wrote a book called Homicide Life in the Streets that was adopted into a, a weekly procedural. Also, that's not anywhere um, because I really wanted to bring – I really wanted to show my mom and my stepdad uh, this this episode from season one. It's like the third or fourth season, um, which is called Three Men and Adina. Uh, Adina is the name of a uh, character who gets killed uh, early on. 
in in Homicide. Um, and it is this super intense interrogation episode. Uh, and it's just not anywhere. Uh, that's not true. It's on – someone has ripped it to YouTube. Uh, okay. And it's one of those videos that's like – the the actual show is in like a tiny it's like a fake theater yep. where inside of the theater it's showing the episode of homicide life on the streets amazing uh, but the quality is bad and the audio isn't good uh and it is it is like wait you know, the show has disappeared yeah dude it's not anywhere i've checked That's like you wild. could buy dvds uh but it's not on any streaming service and it's just one of those reminders that like man it sucks it sucks that stuff sh- that should that could be available just isn't. Yeah, uh, I get right stuff. I want people to get paid too. I get it. Uh, man, I really just wish a lot of the stuff that was foundational for Absolutely. certain subgenres of television were just more readily available. Um, anyway, I think those are our thoughts on Mindhunter. I don't know that we need to. <laughs> I've kind of already dragged this very long. Apologies. Uh, just imagine how much longer I would have gone if I had been literally the week I was so hyped up about this show yeah. when I first got back. Uh, but please, Rob, I do want you to finish this this episode because or this season yeah. or this show rather because I'm so excited for you to see what what where it goes. Yeah. All right. So Danielle, it's that time of year again. It sure is. It's a spooky time of year. A creepy time. And I know you have a tradition. Back to school. (laughs) (laughs) The semester has started. So, uh. Tuition is due. Tuition. (laughs) Student loan. Honestly. (laughs) Yeah. That's the scariest thing in the universe. Um, (laughs) Climate change. Just kidding. Uh, Okay. That's. So, what Rob's referring to is that I once again, for like the fourth year in a row, maybe third year in a row, and I've gone previous to that as well. I made a last-minute trip to Halloween Horror Nights in Orlando, Florida, uh, which is Universal Studios, what they do, in case you're not aware of this. If you've ever been to, like, a theme park, like a Six Flags or something, or even just, like, a a local haunted house where the whole object is you walk through a maze, it's dark, people in costumes jump out at you, and there's, like, tableaus of, like, spooky things, like dungeons and clown houses and all kinds of things like that. What this is, is they turn Universal Studios in Florida into a giant uh, sort of collection of these houses. There's 10 haunted houses, all with different themes, and a number of scare zones, which are outdoor areas where there's just sort it's of- such a funny phrase. It's really funny. Yeah, it. scare zones. Yep. Where there's like people in costume running up to scare you sort of throughout the park, but in zones so that if, if you are really afraid of these things, you could kind of avoid it, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh I think this is one of the strongest showings I've ever been to. I always enjoy this event. It's really, really fun. Uh, it, it is like those sort of corny haunted houses you might see at like a, you know, in a in a neighborhood or wherever, but with Universal Studios budget. So it's really good lighting, really good, like, you know, like theater directors are actually sort of, and production designers are making the tableaus look really cool and really awesome. Sometimes, sometimes there's like flying characters on, you know, like on ropes and things like that. Uh-huh. Really good costumes, really good costume design. And of course, some of these are are properties. You know, there was a Stranger Things house this year. There was a Ghostbusters house. There was a House of a Thousand Corpses house. There was great. <laughs> Uh, and what I enjoy about How'd it- How'd they fit all those corpses in there? There were so many. Wow. I mean- A thousand? Some of them weren't real corpses. They were running around at you, you know, yelling those at are, you. Okay. Did you just imply that some of them were real? Yes. That is what Danielle <laughs> implied. Which well, we're just going to move on. you know, on. Uh, <laughs> look, if you look at a certain way through uh, the eye of the mind hunter, <laughs> Aren't everyone, we all just- Everyone can be a corpse. Pre-corpses? You know, we're all yeah. pre-corpsing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 
You know it's Halloween Horror Nights uh, season <laughs> when graveyards around Orlando start getting robbed. <laughs> Wait, there was a whole bunch of people here a little while ago. Huh. Yeah, it, so I love it because this is basically game design. Like it is very much like all of these are basically horror walking simulators with interactive elements. There are actors who are live. They're actually there. It's not audio animatronics or anything. There are people who are there and sort of reacting to you and knowing kind of, oh, this this is like a good place where I can like, this one looks a little more scared. I can kind of mm-hmm. annoy them a little bit more or stay away if it's like a child or, you know, they, I don't think that they're malicious <laughs> at all. They're called scare actors, by the way. It's pretty fun. Nice. Uh, but there's just some really incredible sort of like level design that goes on in these. And so I, I kind of break it down as there are the big properties, which is, you know, what's on all the T-shirts. It's and like all, Ghostbusters. The Stranger Things. Stranger the things, Ghostbusters. Right, sure. This year they had a uh, Universal Monsters, so Frankenstein and Dracula, like the classic yeah. monsters. So that was like a classic graveyard with a lot of lightning and, and cool stuff like that with a dungeon sort of scene. Uh, but a lot of the sort of big properties, the big names that have longer waits, that kind of thing. They tend to be more like highlight reels of the movie, of the thing. Like the Stranger Things house, which is very long and had several like scenes from the show and actually kind of went through all three seasons. Like there was there was a, a screwed up Billy and all sorts of stuff mm. was happening in. Uh, I just finished that as well. So uh, <laughs> uh, in terms of uh, actually watching TV and those are really fun and those are really cool and they probably have more of a budget and like. They really go all out for like we we have recreated this scene right. from you're this show step or into this it, movie. You're gonna feel like you're, you're in the moment in it, yeah, and the yeah, actors yeah. look like the people. There was an us house that I thought was incredible. What actually. did they choose to do? Was it the car? It was was kind it of amazing? Yeah, it started out in the carnival. Okay, in the sort of the boardwalk, the boardwalk with area, like little girls who were who were dressed up as as oh, the character, wow. and like real actual little girls who mm-hmm. were like acting in this, which was amazing yeah and really cool and then they went through sort of the the house like the the like the white family's house and right. like okay it was actually amazing like it really looked like a nice condo or whatever it was like you know there were several levels mm-hmm. you could look up there were things going on there were things going on in this sort of space so are you just kind of wandering through these spaces are these led are there, is there a it's walk led. is there a path there okay. is like a path okay. and and there are universal employees like if you take too long my mom has some sort of mobility issues so she walks there a little slow sure. i'm kind of holding her hand and we're walking through and they're like come on come on and i'm like listen yeah. <laughs> we waited for an hour yeah. and a half yeah, you we're going to take our goddamn yeah. time yeah. walking exactly. through we're walking come on, we're you. not stopping yeah. but like we're walking so that happens uh, but yeah, it was it was incredible. It was like that's a property that doesn't necessarily lend itself to like people jumping out at you. Like right. it's not that kind of movie. Like it was a, a very in depth, interesting. Do they do movie. any soundtrack work? Yes. Okay. There. Uh, like, is there music? Fuck, fuck the police was like on. Like Great. NWA oh, right. was in on that, when you're walking through. The, like it, it turns Good. on at a point. Like yeah, everything's yeah. a little bit on. Like a, every minute, there's you mm-hmm. know elements of soundtrack that kind of come in. So. And it's nice. sort of timed that you walk through at, yeah. at basically the right time. It's almost like scripting. Like I think of it as game design and like scripting. Uh, but so those houses are amazing because they let you relive something that maybe you love, maybe you've seen, you mm-hmm. enjoy it. I had to, by the way, on the Us House, just very briefly, neither of my parents had seen it. So I had to give them like a synopsis. The rundown of I was what? like, so remember Get Out. That guy who makes really smart horror movies about race and class in America made one of those kinds of movies again. And you're going to see people in red and there's going to be bunnies and there's going to be scissors. Were there bunnies? Yes. Wow. I don't know if they're real. Okay. There were there were things moving around. I That may not have been a, a true actor, a true not animal actor. Not corpses, though. Not corpses. Okay. But there were bunnies. It went through the whole 
storyline. Like it really went through like the plot line. You get did you go down like into the oh that's awesome. Yeah, you go into the the subaltern areas. I want to fucking I want to see I want someone to just I mean they probably are not going to release footage of it, but I want someone to do a walkthrough. Promo footage. Someone sneak a GoPro in. Don't do that. Somebody do it. You probably no do do it. Wink. Yeah. That's don't, a sound. Don't, don't do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it, it was so cool. It was like amazing to see that translated into this type of thing was was rad. Uh, and then so they do these really amazing productions on, on the like existing properties. Right. So those are the big ones. Those are the ones that yeah. are like, hey, you know what this big is. Names. We're translating this to a physical space that you could exactly. walk through. What are the other ones? The other ones are sometimes my favorite because okay. they don't have nearly the budget, but they can get really creative. So there was one that was like a Yeti adventure, and I forget what it was, like Yeti something or other. But it had an entire storyline. It's really amazing that like some of these have really cool and interesting environmental storytelling. So in the Yeti one, you kind of walk in, there's like a cabin in the Yukon. You know something's wrong because the windows are shattered. And you kind of walk through, Mm. and then some Yetis show up. And then they show up again on like different levels. There's some from above. There's some that are right there in your face. There's some that kind of jump out at different angles. It went through like an entire environment. It was like the cabin environment, the outside, another cabin, a station. It's extremely cool. And there was one that was, uh, I think it was called Depths of Fear, which was like basically Bioshock. Like Uh, It it was in a, not Bioshock, Bioshock, but like it was in a lab under the sea. And they were, you know, they were... They were mining, and oh no, they struck upon something too they shouldn't have, mm-hmm. and they went a little too deep. You know, it's, it's not <laughs> and exactly. That thing was objectivism. <laughs> they, That's what it they was. They were mining, and those evil fish. Yep. Found an Think every you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> what what? Did you meet a Yeti? Were there Yetis yes, in the Yeti one? Or was it? Several so that's, Yetis. That's one of the things that I'm so curious about with these because you've told us about these before. Yeah. Is that like. The I've done horror house. I've done like not horror houses as big as this or whatever yeah. haunted houses. Um, as a kid, I was terrified of them. Oh sure, hundred percent. They're startling. Totally, they <laughs> run a chainsaw and the guy chases you, and there's no there's no blade on the chainsaw, right. presumably. Hopefully, um, but like, <laughs> when you're little, when you're little, it's not clear, and the it's lights not, are strobing, yeah. and like <laughs> it's true. a loud noise, one and a dude is disappear. menacing you with a chainsaw. No one would know. No, no one, one would know. notice. Yeah. Oh, is that a corpse? No or is one, that Jimmy? It, I don't who know. Could say. So I was terrified <laughs> of them, but now when I think about like, then the Yeti comes out. Yeah. To what? I mean, what was the creature design like? Was it scary or was it like seeing a like a goofy guy in a big Yeti costume? That's the thing. These really toe the line because they have actual budget, right? Like it is a guy in a rubber suit and you know that. Right, There's yeah, no way yes. you don't know that. But a what person. a suit. But it, the suit is amazing. Like it, it really is like an eight foot tall. Like it's a really tall person in that suit. And, the, and it has like real looking fur. Mm-hmm. It has like really... Creepy, grotesque facial right. features. Yeah, it's it looks scary. Okay, you're not actually scared because it's like, yeah, I know it's a dude in a suit. Yeah, but yeah. we're having a good time. Your good. adrenaline's pumping. It doesn't look like, oh, this was a bear suit a year ago, and they just put a little, <laughs> that was yeah, my put a little silver paint or yeah, something. Like yeah. they actually do like make bespoke, uh, bespoke costumes and masks for all the different houses. That I stuff think. is rad. Like the co- the really fact cool. that they're doing costumes. I have a proposal for one of these. Yeah. I think okay, so you have to imagine it's at a prison. And you walk through and they're like, yeah, fuck off. Get out of here or whatever. The stuff, you know, that you hear in prisons in TV. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's an adapted property. Yes. And then they lead you to a room 
and then they lock the room when you're in there and it's Ed Kemper. <laughs> it's Ed Kemper. And he just sits there and you talk to him for an hour and it's the scariest thing you've ever done. You gotta have him make you coffee. Yeah. yeah, you have to. You gotta and, bring a shoe. Right, you, you, gotta, you gotta bring the shoe. You gotta bring a shoe and they absolutely lock you in there with him. <laughs> and you're there for an hour they and that's it. They say good luck. There's a tape, the tape recorder running. <laughs> you can buy the tape when you're done. Right, it's, 1999. At least. Yeah. At least. <laughs> 1999 is just a tape, $30 for your tape. You can right. get just the Ed Kemper parts yep. for 20 bucks. You, you being like, so what's up with your mom? Yeah. You, throw in, you throw in oh, another 1099, you get a selfie with Ed Kemper. Yeah. He puts his arm around you. Yeah, a little too tight. $2 more, he does he, a hug. He does a hug. He gets a hug. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks for visiting. Yeah. God. <laughs> Fuck. Good. Uh, well, I'm glad you had a good time. It was so fun. Well, I love this stuff. Shout outs to all the people, all the creative folks who work on these because they do an amazing job. Oh, last shout out. I promise. It'll yeah. be quick. One of the scare zones was extremely creative and it was uh, a plast it was like a runway for like basically the doctor in Bioshock who was like plastic surgery yes. gone wrong. And that was the that was like the concept of it. So they had a runway. They had a person like calling out like, "Oh, she's got the look. She's got the moves." And it was like plastic surgery had had gone wrong, and she was like owning it and like doing the like voguing and everything. It was like extremely fun. It was just awesome. like a. It was like I don't know how this got approved. I don't know who <laughs> like not went part of this, the fake Bioshock but one. It felt very. It even had like the Bioshock like lettering over like a little. A tableau with a doctor who was running around and like had the well, we the finally learned thing. what Ken Levine has been up to. Everybody, I folks, think that's right. him, folks. I think that's him. We found him. He's on the runway. He. Oh, you're saying? Ladies I was gentlemen. saying he was there as like a creative director. Oh, oh yeah, we got him. <laughs> <every day. laughs> you don't think he would do both? <laughs> he might. He might. He would put that mask on and be like, God. "I must see. I must see." Doctor. It's killing me. Oh. Steinman. Oh. Steinman. Dr. Steinman was the doctor at the beginning of Bioshock. Oh, the whole anyway. medical bay. Oh, Bioshock. Hooray. I, that game scared me when I played mm-hmm. it. Anyway. I still, like, you bring that up. I'm like, damn, what a cool moment that was, though. Like, you enter the operating bay, and oh, it's just, mm. This one's There's too some, pretty. We this should, one's too ugly. Sorry, that's a paraphrase. We should go back in time and find find the time a year and a half ago to do a, a 101 on Bioshock. Oh my God, yes. We should have done it. Invent time, time travel so we can do it that. It is time to eva- reevaluate and see if-, if We it, needed to invent time travel just to have time to do 101s. Yeah, is the that problem. too. We it would have mm-hmm. been like- mm-hmm. uh, like needing to it'd be like interstellar basically where yeah. we start like just stealing an hour to a day to get like something else done uh-huh. and then we're like 10 years older than everyone around us yep. and rob i think yeah. you're just describing the last few years of That's our lives what it is. we did do that. <laughs> yeah. we just stole that time from ourselves <laughs> a lot more grays than I did three years oh, ago. Yeah. I don't know. It's been, so. it's been a uh, fucking travel. It's been a journey, <laughs> Danielle. Um, cool. Speaking of journeys. Yes. Ah, and space. And time. And time. <laughs> wow. 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 It's, al- it's almost as if, it's Nailed almost it. as if someone <laughs> came back to set this <gasps> whole scenario up, oh Rob. Oh my God. I got a phone call and. <laughs> Rob. You want to explain what, what's, yeah. Look, I've I look, I see the entire circle. I see like I, yeah. like, I do not see uh, I do not see linear time. I, I see the entire uh, the entire path. Uh, so I finally got around to watching uh, Denny Villeneuve's Arrival this weekend, uh, which is based on a story called Story of Your Life by Ted Chiang. Uh-huh. And 
I had put off watching this because, like, it's weird. It, I had a feeling that there was a particular flavor of sad that I was going to have a tough time with there. Like, I have a similar feeling about Contact, for instance. Yeah. Like, sure. there is the like the really personal allegorical sci-fi about, like, personal tragedy tends to hit me on a different level than, like, the murder in a small town. Yeah. And I don't know why that is because a lot of times it's sort of not the main focus in these sci-fi stories, but I think it's presence as part of something else somehow makes it more affecting rather than, you know, in a, in a story entirely focused on uh, sort of the ripple effects of tragedy across lives. But I finally did, uh, you know, make the time to see that. And uh, well, the other thing was I didn't want to watch it streaming and I am behind on my Blu-ray queue because that's who I am. <laughs> that's um, who I am. Yes. But this movie had been hyped up a lot, and I was really pleased to see how well it lived up to that hype. And I was a little bit apprehensive after Blade Runner 2049. As much as I liked that movie, I did kind of wonder, like, is Villeneuve fundamentally a showman and uh, sort of a master of intellectual bombast. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, Manola Dargis in her review of this, of this film actually uh, made a similar comment about Villeneuve. Uh, she said, these visuals can be real showstoppers. Uh, the, the narratives briefly shift into idle. Uh, Villeneuve's uh, visuals are at once off-putting, unsettlingly seductive, and even if you want to look away, it can be hard to. Some of his limitations as a filmmaker are best expressed in the perfect crackling of those flames in uh, Incendius and the pictorial balance of that shot of walled-up torture victims in Sicario. Mm. And I think that does kind of nail my apprehension sometimes about Villeneuve as a director, is that he makes he is such a master of imagery that sometimes does he glamorize things that maybe ought not be glamorized does he sort of does he sort of make seductive things that maybe uh don't necessarily serve the plot or the themes as well as they just serve a declaration of his own technical uh capacity i think in arrival it all ends up working though because i think his strengths do end up meshing with this material because in a lot of ways the material is a little bit understated and so i think it kind of needs vilnev's punching up to make it that much more arresting um but a thing that really got me there, there, were, there were two moments that got me really early um the first thing to know is that this movie takes a long time to show you the actual like any sign of the actual aliens like you spend a lot lot of the first act of this movie dealing with people sort of reckoning with the fact that aliens have arrived on earth mm. uh 12 massive ships have appeared and sort of taken up residence in sparsely populated areas and haven't communicated nobody knows what they want they're just complete mysteries but we don't see any of what's happening we mm -hmm. only get the, the the barest implications of geopolitical unrest around the world uh in, in the wake of this but most of this is is through the lens of amy adams character um just kind of going about her daily routines 
as everything sort of unraveled. It's very children of men, I guess, is the way I put it. Um, And there are two things that really sort of caught me off guard here. Um, One is the obligatory speaker shout out. The there's a moment early on where she's a teacher at a university and at like the evacuation siren sounds and they're just sending everyone home for the day uh, as this as this crisis unfolds. And she walks out into the quad and as she steps out there, uh, you don't see them, but you hear two military aircraft uh, just like there's a sound that military jet engines make, which it sounds like almost like a fabric ripping sound. Like they sound like they're tearing the sky open and it is a really startling thing to hear firsthand. And it's sort of the first really like uh audio visual, like assault we experience in this, in this video is normalcy is breached. Um, and it's just kind of a, a sort of an unsettling moment. And then the next thing that really caught me off guard, um, just in how suggestive but restrained it is, is as she is being flown in this helicopter to the alien landing site in uh, Montana, mm-hmm. I want to say. Um, and they, the aliens have basically come down in this valley behind these like walls of fog rolling off the, the uh, rolling off the mountains and you see the alien vessel for the first time in this, like it's, it's recognizably earth, but at the same time, it already feels like the mm-hmm. entire movie has shifted into an alien dimension. Uh, it is, it is the great plains as alien landscape. And I think the ability that Villeneuve has to continually, make the strangeness and uncanniness of this entire story like palpable ends up making it work in a lot of ways. It ends up taking what could be kind of a thought exercise about perception and um, how we weigh meaning and happiness in life and ends up making it a really arresting and exciting sci-fi film. Um, and so I was really kind of just held wrapped by this entire thing. Yeah, this is a movie that I, I a lot of folks after it came out, all the conversations I had about this movie were about the ending. I was so yeah. frustrated by that. Not that there isn't also a conversation to be had about about the way it wraps up and and what it what it does around that stuff. But for me, it does just fit into uh, that category of science fiction. Uh, mystery of like oh like mystery box stories yeah. there is a thing what is this thing should we be scared of it can we learn to communicate with it how does society around the thing shift and change what are the uh what are the implications if information if no news about it gets out what are the implications internationally to the like all of that stuff that is in stories you mentioned contact before being in a similar space uh or or you know a lot of Crichton stuff you, you think about what is it yeah. sphere um oh yeah like sphere a, yep. a sphere there's a super focused version of that that is just more of a psychological horror story in some places. Um, but like those stories are where I put this story in terms of like subgenre categorization and the way I experienced it. And it's a great one of those with a really strong lead um, and some incredible visual design, right? Like I think Rob, your your point to uh, of note that like the way that the Great Plains are shot here, wherever wherever it takes place, I don't remember exactly what the valley uh, where where this this uh, thing lands is, um, but 
the way that it contrasts that with the like hyper crowded university area at the beginning of the of the movie, uh, e- even the very like homey uh, uh, apartment that she lives in to these huge open spaces and the way that she goes from being feeling alienated to feeling comfortable in that space, uh, uniquely comfortable in a way that no one else in the team uh, does in some ways is really, really cool. Um, and it's just like good character work. It's just a, it's just a well-crafted and like you said, compelling, uh, story on top of the stuff that it, that it capital D does, uh, in terms of questions of, of language and, and the way language shapes society and saber wharf stuff and all that shit, you know? Um, yes. Yeah. I, I haven't seen it since it was in theaters, but I have a very, very strong recall of it being using visual language, like you said, Rob, in a like a really intense way. I remember like stuffing popcorn in my mouth <laughs> for the first, you know, bit of the movie. And then once it starts really getting closer and closer, the apprehension of her her and Jeremy Renner, I guess. Uh-huh. Uh, meet it, yeah, it's, the, it's maybe fine. the weak point maybe of the, the film. Maybe the weak point. Uh, it's yeah, people laughed about Friggin' what's her face being a scientist in a Bond movie. Well, this is a lot more ridiculous. Anyway, um, <laughs> as she gets like closer and closer to like that moment of meeting, I, I remember feeling so much apprehension just watching it through that sort of visual language, that feeling of like gauziness and that feeling of like heaviness, even walking through. I had to like put down my food and I was like, I need to stop eating because now I'm scared. Now I'm nervous. And it wasn't like a horror movie in any way. It was just, it had an incredible sense of dread and apprehension and excitement and tension uh, that was, yeah, I, it has never left me. So. Well, and I think the other thing that was, there, there's some gimmicks at the end, but I think the other thing that really struck me here is the entire story is framed as she is a woman dealing with a massive personal tragedy yeah. and going about her business despite that. Yeah. And, there's something really powerful and affecting there too in that everyone is consumed by this crisis. Everyone is consumed by, we need to solve the mystery of alien speech and uh, nobody can spare a thought for where she's at or how she's doing. And she doesn't even like, seem like she like she also can't do that but there are dream sequences where like you can see the 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 toll of that but it this is very much this also feels very much like a movie about how life goes on Mm -hmm. what you know kind of whether we want it to or not and how no matter what all of us are going to face enormous personal losses and tragedies in in our lives and the world will continue to move on. Things will continue to be asked of us and we will have to function and focus on tasks and detach ourselves from that and go on with the world. And I think the other part of this movie that was really affecting for me is its exploration of that emotional terrain of you have to, you like the world does not stop for you. And you will eventually have to reconcile your own grief with the joys you have and also your ability to continue going on. 
And I think that's one of the that's kind of the central theme of this movie. And there's the you know there's some tricks being played here, but I don't think that that central framing is really disturbed by the reveals. Like I think the the entire movie wants us to be considering in the background of all this at every moment when people are engaging with you as a friend, as a work, as a coworker. Um, You also have this other context. And people may not know it, but you will have it and you'll have to carry it and find a way to carry it. And that 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 trauma is one of those things that does happen to everyone. Right. Like different levels of it. Sure. But it is one of those things that ultimately that by the end of the movie also is shown as like that is a a a connector through the like human existence is people going and dealing with trauma will be a constant yeah yeah i like a lot i'm i'm so curious about uh the director's take on dune uh, as someone who has only ever approached dune sideways i've never i've seen the david lynch film uh i've you know been you know arm deep in wikipedia um did you ever play dune 2000 i played some dune 2000 yes Uh, i recently watched the shut up and sit down review of dune uh the board game uh, which is a Great. fascinating thing to to watch because that board game seems dope, but also very a lot. It seems like a lot. Um, but I've never I've never read the book. Uh, my grandfather loved the book, and it's like on my list. It's on my shelf as like a thing I want to actually read in the near future. Yeah. Uh, I'm so curious to see him a- attempt that type of politicking and pomp um, in, in science fiction after having done the kind of. Uh, bleak restrained storytelling here the kind of like cramped um uh almost you know um uh I'm trying to think of the right word because it isn't just excessive the blade runner stuff it's it, it's almost toyetic in certain places sure. where it's like ah big bold super memorable set design right. things that you would buy collectors items of um to something like dune which you know, uh, aesthetically has always been very like iconic in its, yeah. in its uh, designs where it's like, here is that same style, of, like Blade Runner, big boldness, yeah. but, but mixed with the kind of like wide shot emptiness of, of uh, arrival. So I'm curious to see how that turns out. I know some folks are skeptical. I'm curious. Yeah. Uh, so I think we will wait to see how that comes together. <laughs> uh, and, uh, I, I am sure at some point we will have, uh, <laughs> we will get into our complicated feelings about Dune yes, and what the Dune universe became and what you choose to focus on, uh, when you adapt Dune. Um, and it will <laughs> well, be so interesting to see how Villeneuve now. I really, it. now I'm curious. I know, right? Yeah. Or the 2000 made for TV movie about it. It was. Oh, I forgot about that. I, I, never I watched had a that. DVD. Wow. I that was fine. Yeah. I liked it, but I was also 16 and had never written, yeah, mm. read the book. So I, it's yeah. been, you know, almost 20 years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, I think you got the real problem of like, are you trying to set up a thing about the Dune universe? Or are you just telling the story of Dune? Yeah. Um, like, cause it depends. Like I personally am with you. Nobody wants to see Paul Atreides turn into a big worm or no, that's his son. Never mind. That's the son. Um, Spoilers. Yeah. It gets, <laughs> It, like it gets increasingly <laughs> hallucinatory 
<laughs> um, and like, yes, there are points being made there, but also like a lot of what is compelling about Dune steadily falls away through that series, I would argue. Um, and that makes it tough to stick with. So sure. I'm curious what choices are made there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but either way, unreservedly recommend Arrival. Uh, I wish I had not put off so long watching it, but I'm glad I finally got around to it. Uh, so that will do it for this week's Waypoints. We're going to have the NFL post-pod segment here in a moment. Uh, should we do the outro now? Yeah. And then uh, and if we you don't want to hear us stuff. talk about NFL stuff, you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> it's wild yeah. because we recorded that on Monday. It's Wednesday now, and yeah. it feels like we already would have another 30 stories to talk about because that is how yeah. sports oh, stories Lord, yeah. work, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. All right, uh, and on that note, we're going to take a break. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Uh, just put some dead dead soulless eyes on that so, crummit. You got you got money. Uh, you, got, you got money right there. <laughs> so you got a kicker. Oh yeah. Do we I ever? I forgot. This oh was my. Fifty-two yards. Fifty-three yards. I would have ended 50, shit earlier if I fifty-two or fifty-three. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fucked up. Congrats. Um, Do we have a quarterback? Destiny. Is the real question. Uh, but no, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold yeah, on. Yeah, I just yeah. want to back up. Like yeah. I was reading. An interview with Eddie Pinheiro uh, afterwards, and he, and this was apparently confirmed by talking to some of the other players they mentioned, like, when this was all, like, happened towards the end of the game, he was praying that he'd get a lot, like, he's like, give me the shot, I can do it. And he, like, was mentioning to the other players around, I was like, just put it in my feet, like, I will, I, I will, I will save, I will win this game for us. Like, he, like, that's the, like, apparently that was one of the early things that, that, that attracted the team to him, was like, he seems like a guy that won't, rather than crumbling under pressure, like, want, like give it to me. Like, I will put the team on my back. And, like, that's fun. It's just a good story. I don't know what this team is going to be like, you know, the rest of the way. But, you know, if you had told me a year ago, it's like, hey, you're going to solve your kicking problem. And I'm like, great. The season's going to be a blast. <laughs> and instead, that's, like, the thread I'm holding on to uh, when uh, our guy can't throw a ball more than six yards. You can't rely, except in the final two minutes of the game. <laughs> sure, he clutched yeah, right clutch, there, man. Right there, that's a absolutely a clutch quarterback. I, like, the way he talked about, you know, he's like, you do the pump fake, you go in the pocket, you come forward, it breaks down the coverage, and he did exactly that. I just wish you could do that in spots that didn't make me feel like I was actively having a heart attack. <laughs> the the time, like, it must be so nice to like have a, a you know a quarterback where it's like cool. They've got some time. They're going to be calm, collective, poised. Who knows what could happen? And I have the same feeling, but just in the other direction of the majority of the time. Trubisky is interesting because he points out how tough it is to be a quarterback in the NFL in some Mm -hmm. ways. Like you realize, 
yes, he doesn't get the cleanest pockets in the world, but he does get time to throw. And when you see a Deshaun Watson or a uh, Patrick Mahomes get a similar amount of time, they tend to make pretty good decisions at the end of that, like brief, you know, you only get like two 1000 and then you should probably be throwing a pass in the NFL, right? Like that's, that's probably when you should be launching. And that's a really compressed time frame, and really good quarterbacks somehow see a great deal of the field and like read a lot of routes or they've read the coverage well enough to know which routes are probably going to be good bets. And then they make a good decision. I'm not sure Mitch Trubisky. And I think this is what separates like good quarterbacks from people who end up being like career backups. I'm not sure he has that vision. I'm not sure he has the capacity to see the field that way. And I sympathize yeah. uh, when I, uh, you know, when I started playing some of this year's Madden, it started to dawn on me that even with the magic enchanted perspective on the game that Madden gives you, seeing if you've got five receivers running routes, yeah. processing how those routes are unfolding and where the soft spot in the coverage is, is really tough, even with the God's eye view. Mm. I cannot imagine what it is like when you know, like when in the back of your mind, you're like, there's a 260 <laughs> pound dude who runs like a four, six possibly at any moment could just appear out of my blind spot and obliterate <laughs> yeah. me. That could just happen. And I have to put that out of mind and just make a decision here. Yeah. Uh, I sympathize, but I, I'm increasingly worried that uh, the bears have a quarterback who like, has all the physical attributes, but just the not gonna mental make that stuff leap. is just it's just yeah. not smart enough. Like and you like it's we we constantly think of football because so much of the sport is like raw athleticism and big dudes running into big dudes. That how much of quarterback play is actually like like football IQ, like the the like football intelligence. You know, the athleticism is a big part. Watching Patrick Mahomes like do no look passes or like he'll be run like there is a a pass he did in the, in the game over the weekend where he was on the right side of the field running to the right and just yeah. kind of turned and chucked it to the left and didn't have a lot of, you know, usually when you see a guy like wing a pass, like it's like, you know, they do the drop back, they step forward, like they lean into it, like they're using their body, their abdomen, like their arm, like everything is where he, he's just kind of like, eh, just kind of like flicks it. And it looks like a bullet shot out of his arm and it goes <laughs> On the other side of the field. Like, that's not possible. Like, nobody can do that, but he can. And what was that game where it was first person, but you were playing football? I don't know. There, there are games, there are football games that have had first person modes. In this was like their whole, this is like the football. pitch for this game. Oh, I do remember this. It, was, it wasn't NFL teams. It was no. uh, fake teams. Right. First, per- first person like football bone breaker or something four. like that. It was like first. <sighs> Just get this guy on s- that to train for the mental stuff. Backbreaker was it? Backbreaker. Backbreaker. Uh, let me see. That is, mm, no, maybe actually. No. That was just another. Not gonna get the NFL license with that name. <laughs> uh, certainly not. Uh, Love the NFL, which cares deeply about player safety so much that Travis uh, Travis Kelsey last night during the Philly uh, <laughs> during the Eagles game. Yeah. Uh, walks to the Atlanta bench after a play and had to be sent back across the field to his own bench, Um, which sounds like a guy getting disoriented after a hit and ending up with the wrong team um, and cleared concussion protocol, which I don't know. Sometimes people have sometimes look, we all have brain farts, Uh but 
I think that so, takes sometimes on different... your brain actually farts because it's been yeah. hit by a, <laughs> yeah, a man and shoved to the ground. That, that's the thing where it was like, oh, well, he's back in the game. He passed the protocol. I'm like, I don't know if I believe in the protocol now. Like they have I feel a like lot more strict to... about that, and it's out of like the team's hands. But yeah, I mean, it doesn't mean that it can't be eked, eked around. Like they, like if you compare how they've treated injuries like that relative to you know even just five years ago, they, they are more aggressive about keeping players out of the game. But yeah. yeah, I mean, who knows? ESPN NFL 2K4 and 2K5, I think, apparently had mm, first person modes. Yeah, that, that sounds bad. familiar. Uh, but get to your point, Kata, which is like, yeah. And also, Rob, you don't know. You don't know who's around you uh, at all. The Eagles look bad. The Eagles look bad. I didn't catch it live because I was doing the Friends of the Table post more. Wentz does not look Wentz good. Looked bad. McCown looked almost arguably better. Uh-huh. Um, uh, the, the, I wonder if he's in, is he injured? He, there any, like, rumors uh, yeah, that I he mean, is... he, he got hit really hard and was favoring his ribs for the whole first half. He came mm. out in the second half and looked better, but uh, did not look good. Uh, in what I saw, I think I saw his pass rating in the first half was six point five. Six, it was six, It might have been lower. It was six point something. Yeah, it's it was down there. Well, <laughs> that pass there was rating one is not safety golf. who just owned him the entire first half. Yeah. Um, well, that's because our O line looked like fucking trash. Wentz. Uh, what? Wentz. 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 Mm-hmm. Fallout boy. Fallout. Yeah. Fallout boy. Yeah. That's yep. him. They got him. They got P. Wentz. I know. It was wild. But <laughs> so he's going down, the, down for yeah. sure. <laughs> Fall Boy's from like my town. Oh, like, oh. Uh, um, like my wife used to hang out not with um, Pete, but um, who's the singer? Uh, the other one. I can't remember. Uh, Whoever the singer of Fall Out Boy yeah. is, but that dude. Um, they used to th- they used to do a lot of like house shows and stuff like that before like they got popular. Mm. Um, and then my wife always tells the story of um, uh, they threw they were really desperate to try and get people to show up to um like some of these house shows where it's not just, and so they said they were throwing uh, a kegger. I feel like I may have told the story before, but they would throw, they threw a kegger. Um, but um, people showed up and it was all root beer instead of beer. Um, but they were already there for the show. Party foul. So wow. People stayed. Well, hey, you gotta, you get, you I get like people in a. Yeah, root beer is good. But. It's gotta be good root beer. Have y'all though. tried this fucking white claw yet? I almost got some white claw yesterday. Yes. I have tried. I tried it. it. You're wait. Are you being facetious? I'm not being facetious. No, not you, Rob. Uh You've not. You don't know about the white claw craze. (laughs) He he doesn't. This is legitimately a phenomenon among hard seltzer. Yeah, yeah. Which we knew it was coming. Is this just seltzer? It's hard seltzer. Hard seltzer. Yeah, it's like a Mike's hard lemonade. This isn't even the first hard lemonade. seltzer on the market. No, no, but no, it's, it's the just one white claw just took that... off as yes, yeah. yeah, it took off as like a uh, drink of the summer. It's like oh, we're drinking white claws. <laughs> is it What'd particularly high alcohol content? I don't think it's fine. It's, it's, like it's a, fine. It's like a beer. Yeah, yeah. It's, like, it's fine. Yeah. Like I don't know. There's nothing special about it. It became trendy. Like right. yeah, as someone that spent I mean, a lot of time here, sometimes it's like uh, you can get fucked up on a white claw. I would love to get fucked well, up sure. on white claws. What I'm saying. <laughs> If someone could make it happen. So no, what I really want, Austin, though, you need to come up. Yeah. We're getting a case of White Claw. Hell yeah. And we're getting a case of the, uh, the, the coffee bean. The cologne. Mil- yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. And oh we're God. just going to have a long weekend. Yeah. It's 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 cold. It's alcohol cold brew is what it was. Right. Yeah. It was like cold. Alcohol cold brew. Yeah. Let's do it. Now, admittedly, Both of these that's could be something bad. that you could just make at home. But this. this just comes in a convenient can. I like cans. Wait, how do you make that at home? 
Just put some fucking put Baileys in there. What do you want to mix with your coffee? I guess. There's all sorts yeah, of things you could like, add. Whiskey. Like, yeah, you yeah, yeah but this adds, you keep this whiskey is, in your desk yeah. for a reason. This is fundamentally different, right? <laughs> I don't know. We haven't the, tried. The, that's what excites me. Yeah, is yeah, like, yeah. Like boozy cold brew could be materially different than me just like spiking the shit out of a glass of cold coffee. <laughs> like that's yeah. Those that that's could I mean. be a different experience. I definitely think it like, is. Any schmuck can just like, ooh, I'm a mixologist and pour Baileys <laughs> into something and be like, look, I'm a genius. Yeah. Anyone delicious pouring Baileys into anything talks style to of, themselves. Yeah, 100%. Uh, well, well, I almost just threw it at the fucking end of the show again. I don't know how to close a post-pod segment. Well, we... Is there more? What's happening? Well, Drew Brees out for like six oh, weeks. Oh, yes, which I did like, see this. On, on a fluke play where it's just... Like they high five, he and Aaron Donald high fived, <laughs> and it's just like, like it didn't they, like often. To be think, clear, it was not an actual high five. No, but like if you were to watch the replay, I mean, he, you know, he's going to try and deflect the hand, but it's not like often hand yeah. injuries in football are like you punch somebody's helmet or you get crunched in yeah. on a piece of like bodily equipment. This was like literally just hand like on hand. hands colliding in middle mid air, and he um, they were showing during the game. He went out and he was just trying to pick up a football and couldn't pick up a football. Like that's like how much pain his finger was in. So he saw a specialist. He's going to be out for six to eight weeks, which, you know, um, I don't root for injuries. Drew Brees seems like a a nice guy. He's been a really fun player to watch over the years. And like the whole story of, you know, the Saints winning that Super Bowl when they did was was such a cool thing. Um, But (laughs) does play the Bears and he will now miss that game. And I don't feel that scared about Teddy Bridgewater. And so Patrick is just like couple, like couple weeks away from like, you know, bounties are fine. Really? (laughs) No, no. I I think he's a couple of white claws away. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would rather beat Drew Brees. But if you're saying, can we artificially lower the difficulty? You know, it's yeah. just, it is what it is. I'll, t- I'll yeah. take the the win is win is win. And then it's, hey, uh, notorious shithead, uh, 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 Raffelsberger out for the season. Yeah. Goodbye. Bye. Sometimes I'm things curious, work out that like, way. At some point, that era's got to end. Is this the moment where you're like, this is done? Like, they it's did an elbow sign surgery. A, yeah, they did sign him to a tier year, contract right? in, the, yeah. in the off season, but he would turn 40 in between this season and next. He's a guy who's he's, constantly threatening to retire. He looks okay, but if you're ever going to turn the book, it's like, eh, maybe you tank. And I've heard the quarterback class next year is like supposed to be. Yeah. But some it comes guy down to get. trust the process. The, the, the problem is, does Tomlin let you tank it? Because like, are you going to use that to get him out of there? Mm. Um, and two, does the owner, because the, the ownership there likes Ben. And they've sort of backed him to the hilt. So yeah. it could be one of those weird situations where, like, everyone knows this this era needs to end. Yeah, but it's, the, he's it's, on, he's it's on like a Eli right yeah. now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's on a yeah. two-year, which means you could tank this year. You could pick up someone good in the draft. And you could keep Ben on for next year and have him, like, yeah. get his farewell season. You're training the rookie up. You're passing the or, torch Or off. if he shits the bed, you're like, okay, cool. Like, yeah. he shit the bed. Yep. Now here's the new guy comes in. So speaking of tanking, um, I watched the Miami game this weekend. They're not a real yeah. football team. Uh, nope. That's going to be a <laughs> I th- like. I think isn't it possible that like Miami is so transparently tanking? Like there's what the Browns did, which was just they were just actively bad. Yeah, but yeah, and it was true when their current GM came in, he like stripped the, the team for parts in, in a certain degree. But they were already most of the way. Yeah, there. they were organically just, terrible. Yes, they were organic, organically tanking. Miami is just saying. What if we don't put a product on the field? The Dolphins? What if 
the dolphin. Yeah. yeah. What if they're what just, if we technically put that's well, just, they have been. That's just um, but always. <laughs> like, well, I could like if they do this this where they're essentially you're getting this is the equivalent of uh, Rob when you were kicked out of your I think you mentioned you were uh, essentially asked to leave a fantasy league <laughs> because at a certain point you just weren't putting in players when they were on oh, their bye weeks, yeah. which was just offering I a free win had a to lot somebody of else. Trips that year, I'm, I'm, I think no, that's that's fair. A little a warning lot, would have been nice. <laughs> It happens, and but people get frustrated in like like leagues where like I'm in one where you know I pay fifty bucks up front to get in for uh, a pot at the end, and you get you get one warning if you like have an empty roster slot, but otherwise like those free wins can mean a lot towards the end of the season, and so people don't tolerate. So like, will the league at some point like there's organic tanking, and then there's like ha, 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 um, any player that wants out, we'll take a draft pick, like get out of here, and I mean they've lost. Uh, I think I saw the um, what was it? It was like forty-one to zero last week, forty-three to zero this week. It's the largest def- back-to-back deficits since like early years of the league. Um, yeah. At some point, you have to legislate because the the NBA did legislate this out, right? It's so like the way the NBA draft works now. This was the first year that they implemented it, right? Where um, if you're you, the worse you are, the higher percentage you have to get a lottery ball. For the first round right. pay. But, but being the worst chance. team yeah. does not guarantee well, this is how it worked out, right? Like the New Orleans Pelicans, who were like had something like an eight percent chance, like they were like the seventh worth team. They lucked into Zion what? right after getting rid yeah. of Anthony Davis. And so I think the NFL, if the Dolphins do this, at some point you cannot allow teams to just like guarantee have themselves. replacement level yeah. players or you know, that come in and get themselves to own sixteen. Um you then it's implement like a one to three or one to five lottery system where it's like, yeah, if you're bad, you have a chance at the number one spot. But, you know, it is sort of weird. Like, look what the Colts did, right? Like they, Peyton Manning, they looked, they saw they were going to have a bad season. Luck into mm, mm, Andrew Luck. Yeah. Um, but that, that seems, that seems unfair or it doesn't seem like that's it. Cause then you can engineer it. And the moment you can engineer it, it's probably time for them to well, legislate it out. And the thing is, like, Miami's a team that makes you nervous to watch a little bit because the thing is, one of the things that parody in the NFL is roughly supposed to do, in addition to generating a competitive product every week, is every team should theoretically have at least, like, one one or two Pro Bowl caliber guys. There should be yeah. some strong players there, but a lot of, like, really good starters uh, who are who are very competent in their positions, and then there's backups. And there's probably going to be weaker parts of the lineup. But generally, you want teams to be like a decent distribution of talent. If you have a team intentionally begin shedding talent across the board, football gets really dangerous yeah, that's exactly in ways that it doesn't. Like, and a, like NBA, the, the Sixers, when they were at their tankiest, uh, it can only go so far in terms of like the physical risk you're that you're exposing players egos, to, right? You're not. It is not the. Yeah, I think a lot about how in in MMA in in the UFC, it's like the the fight ends when one when one fighter is no longer able to protect themselves, and you can't yeah. end an NFL match or an NFL game because you tell you can tell that the management and the coaching is throwing the game and basically playing. <laughs> There's a, no slaughter rule, right? Totally. <laughs> Because, but but literally every every down is a chance that someone could get hurt really bad, especially if they're being directed to play in, you know, non uh, non optimal ways, right? Yeah, <laughs> there, was a, there was there was there was a play uh, where Ryan Fitzpatrick was the 
uh, quarterback for the Dolphins. I guess Josh Allen is going to, or not Josh Allen, um, whoever their back, their their backup. That guy was the first round pick from last year. Um, uh, anyway, Brian Fitzpatrick was in, threw a ball, and there was an open receiver. It was you know just like a slant route, just you know a couple of yards forward. The receiver ducked out of the way of the ball, <laughs> like uh, went on, like, saw the ball, and went, oh cool, whoop. <laughs> it just yeah, I mean, well, because there's guys getting blown up. There, like uh, one of the things that Wentz did the other night uh, was he sailed a pass on, um, uh, oh gosh, uh, Aguilar Jeffrey. Yeah, a- Aguilar. He sailed a pass to Aguilar on the uh, in the end zone and just hung him out to dry, and he got crushed by the uh, safety and had to be like he was taken out of the game. And that's kind of like and like football, such a cooperative sport, and there's so much physical risk that. People being less competent at their job, it's like any other job. It means other people have to work harder. But working harder in the NFL generally means taking harder hits, absorbing more punishment. And I think that's where the Miami experiment that we're seeing begins to get. Forget like fans having a bad product. I don't care. But like that seems like a scary team to play for. Like if I'm Fitzpatrick, that is kind of a nerve wracking team. Mm-hmm. Like Fitzpatrick has always been kind of your, you know, understudy uh, quarterback. But even he might deserve better than this team. Or at one point, you just have everyone collectively give up and it's just like, cool, we're just trying to get off the field. Um, yeah. We're not actually interested. But in you run into the game. Sixers problem because the, the dudes you end up with are marginal guys who would give anything to stay in the league. Yeah. And so, like, you're going to have guys who aren't really yeah. NFL caliber doing their best their to stay in this. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so that's that's the thing. Like, the tanking only goes Sometimes so far. Sometimes literally their job is to protect other players from being hurt. And like, well. Yeah. Every time that we that we switch one of these people out for someone who is a little worse, I'm literally increasing the the quarterback's chance of getting hit in the head, right? Yeah. Like, guys aren't supposed to come through unblocked. Right. Like, when that happens, when you see it happen, a blown blocking assignment, the physical force of, like, a linebacker coming through unblocked is, like, truly staggering. And... That's just supposed to be a really rare occurrence. When it becomes a regular occurrence, people are going to get hurt. The other thing, though, that was really uncomfortable to watch about that uh, Miami game was they're playing the Patriots. And then we got to, yep. given the conversation we had a couple weeks ago, we got to address this uh, a little bit. Uh, you would not have guessed from watching the telecast of that game um, that there was anything but the usual off-field distractions around Antonio Brown, yeah. uh, who's now playing for the Patriots. Uh, it was shocking the degree to which uh, it seemed like the Patriots have spent the last week backing him to the hilt. Uh, the announcers didn't want to talk about it. But since we talked about uh, in our Waypoints pre, uh, end of preseason show, Antonio Brown, after a really drama-filled and goofy summer that – was easy to read a lot of things into. And I think we tended to try to take a sympathetic line uh, toward Antonio Brown, uh, as we often do with, uh, you know, players who are easy to pigeonhole and uh, people who run into trouble with management. Uh, At the end of all of that, right after he announces, right after he gets himself fired by the Raiders and gets picked up by New England, Another thing emerged, which is that he has accusations of sexual assault against him uh, by a former trainer. But today there's a Sports Illustrated story that unpacks 
a longer history mm. of uh, sexual misconduct uh, assaults. And what's the way to put this? Um, if you watch, if you if you watch like NFL media, uh, and I think Austin, you talked about this a little bit over the weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are people who legit don't know that the narrative around Antonio Brown has been really radically recontextualized. And I kind of don't believe that on some level until I watched yesterday's game. Right. And I watch for like three hours, two announcers just talk about what a great competitor he is. What an incredible, he's just revitalized this offense. And if he can, if he can just, you know, stay on the field, if he can finish the season with the Patriots, uh, they're going to have an incredible passing attack. Yeah. I got a DM over the weekend. What they're talking around was completely right. They didn't fill it in. I got a DM this weekend from a fan who was like, I listened to the NFL uh, part of the the waypoints recently after Antonio Brown went to the Patriots. You know, all that shit was completely indefensible. And I was like, uh, there there is a much there is a much greater uh, flaw in Antonio Brown than going to the Patriots. Uh, have you not heard? And this person had not heard at all because what they do is watch the games. Um, and like. I, <sighs> I don't expect every NFL game to go down a running list of allegations about players necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> it would be here all day <laughs> uh, because that is a real problem. But it is it is very interesting to see the ways in which that stuff is just drifts into the background. Um, I guess we'll know more soon on on how that that case goes. But uh, but yeah, I mean, the NFL said they're going to I think this week is are interviewing. The, the woman who's yep. Uh, yep. made the allegations. And now there's and, other accusers. Yes. And other accusers. And like the, you know, the the, uh, the Patriots line seem to have been, well, if the NFL is not going to step in, we're just going to pretend like nothing's totally. happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the I guess the split the difference the NFL took, which they could have easily just, they have this thing. It's a, They just sort of invented it a couple of years ago. It's called the commissioner's exempt list. It's where basically like a thing comes up with a player and it's not it's messy they can kind of just like you're not and take it out of the team's ba- hands yeah it's like you're not banned because we don't know exactly what's going on but until this is resolved you're just you're you're taken off and the team's not penalized or anything like that and they chose to not do that because in every other instance in which they have done it it's involved a criminal case in which the police are involved in this case it's a civil case. it's a civil matter yeah. and yeah. so their argument was like oh well eh. when really what they should have done was just taken them off the field for Yep. You know, two or three weeks. And maybe it still ends up in a place where we're like, yeah, hey, Antonio Brown is a gross bad guy. But at least, you know, the, the, the woman's allegations get their time yep. to be aired and investigated. And for the NFL, we're just fuck it up, probably. But at least um, she she gets her moment to 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 explain herself. That, yeah, I think a lot about obviously Kavanaugh, Brett Kavanaugh's in the news again this week because of. Uh, yep. New new information and allegations about some a, of his there's college a book behavior. In, uh, um, by two New York, uh, New York Times reporters, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and also a really bad New York Times headline. Um, uh, and I, I think a lot about this stuff. Uh, Antonio Brown taking the field and the broadcasters talking around this stuff. I think a lot about the ways in which there is. We talk about a chilling effect when it comes to the ways in which rape and sexual assault and sexual misconduct allegations are uh, dismissed or not given time, not given space. Uh, And this feels like an example of this where in the same way that all throughout the Kavanaugh hearings, there was this insistence that he, he deserved respect 
he he went to such and such school. He's from a good family. He's from a nice neighborhood, and and he's a judge. And so that should that means that when we talk about this, we need to talk about it with a certain degree of respect and and uh, integrity and et cetera. Uh, that hangs over the moments where the victims in these stories, the survivors in these stories, share their their moments because they always have to come through with this degree of of guarding. And it's as if it's as if it, someone is afraid that that if you get rid of that moment of respect from the top, that there's no way to come through at the end and be like, hey, uh, you know, we've looked into it and we've decided X, Y, Z. And Antonio Brown is going to – Brett Kavanaugh is still going to go through and, and get the nomination. Uh, uh, as if that wouldn't have happened if we'd done away with all the respectability. And I think in a similar way, it's frustrating to see – the idea that he has to be able, allowed to take the field, put him on the exempt list, let this happen, and then what happens happens after that. But putting him on the field immediately, it, to me, sends a signal yeah. that, no, that allegation isn't serious enough. Uh, these allegations don't matter as much as our ability to, to put him on the field. That that You know what? He's a professional athlete. Show him the degree of respect he deserves. Sure, we'll look into it. And when we look into it, we'll look into it and make a decision. But we're not going to stop. Uh, look is, at the, we're look, not going to stop the, the status Chiefs. quo. You know? You know, the, the, the Chiefs, you know, signed yeah. a three-year extension with Tyreek Hill, uh, where all the evidence, they were not, they were is inconclusive on who broke that child's arm. Someone broke that kid's arm. And even if you can't fall on that um, because it was it was messy, uh, he was on a recording, you know, threatening his wife. Yeah. Um, and it's like, oh, well, mm, police didn't resolve well, it. So uh, it's just yeah. three weeks. When, when these crimes are please about you. the breach of consent and about the breach of like um, the, the breach of normalcy, the breach of safety. To then have that flip around and have this sort of insistence that we may, we must not breach the norm, we must not like shake things up too bad until we know for sure, is just like it stings extra to, to me a little bit. Well, especially because these are often crimes motivated by abuse of power, yeah, one hundred percent, and uh, like enjoy like sadistic enjoyment of power. Yep. And I think when you immediately, because then you you were sort of forced to play. Uh, you, you were sort of forcing everyone to adapt themselves and their thinking to the very structures that enabled the abuser in the first place. Yep. Uh, you know, when we say, ah, but first and foremost, this man is a judge. <laughs> first and foremost, this, you know, this, this man is, is, is a great athlete, a great rich athlete. Uh, you, you are immediately conceding something right at the start that this is somebody for whom whatever else you, you may decide is entitled to this degree of, uh, presumption of goodness or worth. And we, we will then make a. We will then pass a similar judgment about the worth of that accuser. Uh, I think that is part of what, what is implicit in these in, in these incidents. Uh, I, I also do think that one of the things that makes these situations extra tricky is that we have a legal system that is notoriously incompetent at handling these types of charges. Um, you know, this is the, the, the entire criminal justice system, uh, the organizations, uh, and, and, uh, institutions that we have even outside the criminal justice system, universities, schools, uh, you know, com companies, HR departments, all of these institutions and structures 
tend to be particularly bad at handling these situations and reaching any sort of uh, sense of we've resolved what the truth of a situation Mm. is and we can then somehow uh, strike some sort of fair settlement or reconciliation that, if not ideal, uh, can at least be identified as some form of justice. We don't have any of that. We we do not expect it. We don't. We do not. We certainly don't expect it from the courts, um, and so we are left with these really, by definition, uh, messy disputes that break into the public, and they're shocking because we have no the, like. There's no other place for these things to be fairly and justly adjudicated. So they always turn into uh, these stories where where we are we we have on one hand always allegations. And on the other hand, we always have sort of a, well, we can't reach any sort of definitive conclusion about what happened. And we never, most of us will never truly know. And we will never truly feel confident that justice was done. Um, And I think to some extent, the, the thing that does make me a little bit sympathetic with the NFL's position here, or at least, we're probably expecting too much from the NFL to do something here because you know what I mean? It's like, it, it's, it's a bad institution too. We, well, we this, talk this, about this, this, this all the time. The, this is the same way where it's like we, uh, our uh, government institutions regularly fail us to take action and things like gun control. So, okay, Walmart, can you, can we just pressure you yeah. to take guns off your shelves? Like, it's good because that's, we have now looked to corporations to, their wokeness and progressiveness to make up for institutions elsewhere. Right. We, we just want some sort of like, like crumb of something that feels like accountability or justice and we will take it where we can get it. And I think that ends with, that ends up with us looking to the NFL of all organizations to be like, damn you, you know, you have to make Antonio Brown, uh, you know, face some consequences for this. And it does seem like in this case, some consequences are going to be hard to avoid uh, as more accusers uh, come forward. But at the same time, the NFL is kind of the last link in this chain in some ways Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of institutions that are supposed to look after uh, people and advocate for uh, victims, for survivors and try to reach fair settlements. And that is just not the system we've set up, particularly around crimes like this. Um, last thing, last thing I will say as well. Um, I felt strange when the story came out about the conversation we had about Antonio Brown a yeah, couple sure. weeks ago. Um, and I guess I'm curious. To me, I felt like the thing that was frustrating there for me was I felt like I had probably gone, I had been reaching to find a way to create a narrative where this guy was the misunderstood, um, you know, where this guy was kind of misunderstood and persecuted and kind of being treated like just a clownish celebrity in, in ways we often see people treated and in ways that often make me feel uncomfortable. But when this story emerged, it also occurred to me that that kind of framing is that also how we end up letting malefactors get away with stuff in plain sight? It is, but you know I, I mean, I, I like, will, the thing that I want to quickly make sure that we cut off is the idea that you can spot them. Um, yes. Predators, predators put on clean faces, 
They access people uh, via clean faces. They get people alone that way. They they like literally hunt and prey on the back of of uh, being approachable, of being um, uh, you know. Uh, uh, never that person. I mean, think about the the fucking decades of stories about about uh, uh, college athletes who are uh, yeah. he's such a, such a good guy. He comes from such a good family. Again, the Brett Kavanaugh shit is literally this. Never that. Never yeah. that guy. Uh, it's all that stuff. So, so to some degree, I'm I'm with you in that. I felt I had that feeling. Right, like I, I actually it was after Akato, you and I came out of seeing that Gundam movie. Mm. We also saw it with um, uh, Waypoint moderator Mo, and Mo was like, "Whoa, while we were in there, the Antonio Brown story broke. The details are really bad." And I immediately was like, "Oh fuck!" Like, <sighs> and and so to some degree, I I'm sympathetic. I I feel you on this. The idea that like, are we laughing at behavior that is uh, tied to a certain personality type? That uh, suggests a sort of um, narcissistic uh, behavior no. pattern of pattern of behavior that is that can be associated with the sorts of abusive practices that are about centering a, a self and centering the you know your your desire and your you know your thirst for power or attention or whatever over the safety and and comfort of others. Like I, I guess you could make that case, but the thing that I, you have to make in conjunction with that is. And also the people who look like nice guys too, like yeah. Uh, and also Ben Roethlisberger, who I'm sure has many people who will tell you he's a, such a nice guy, right? Uh, uh, and also Nick Robinson, right? Like that is like the thing to underscore again and again and again is like and the soft boys too, uh, and the yeah. the church the you know the church deacon too. There is not a there there is not a personality type or a, a persona that means a person is a safe person um and that fucking yeah. sucks it's terrifying it's bad um but it is real and and it is a thing to have that you have to confront uh, otherwise what you risk doing is creating patterns that preemptively um uh, uh judge innocent people who are not and preemptively put pressure on survivors to not come forward because well everyone likes this person everyone thinks this person is so great they'll never believe my story and so like i think the thing that we have to do is immediately say that like you know what uh, should we be on more on the lookout and be more cautious and skeptical about people who do have some of these tendencies probably but also if if we also have to remember that other types of people have often just as much, if not higher chance of, of uh, being uh, – or other types of personas are also potentially abusers and predators in similar ways. So I don't know. Um, I think it's worth. Yeah. I think it was uh, and, worth bringing to, up, though, Rob, for what it's worth. Yeah, and, and to be fair, like a person who, who did all the same things we saw this summer from Antonio Brown could as easily not be – a right, exactly it that. Just like exactly, it that. could have just been something else was going on that doesn't. There is no correlation. There is no uh, like I like. Yeah, there, there's no magic trick to profiling <laughs> and unmasking exactly uh, people like that. God, I watched yeah. Mind no, Hunter over over my Dude, vacation. We need to do a waypoint about Mind Hunter to talk. We can't about. do this in we, this conversation. Not in this conversation. <laughs> we gotta stop. We're gonna we stop this stop. conversation. But we, gotta, we should. We gotta. Can we, we can a, continue this conversation and release it on Wednesday. No, we're done. <laughs> No. We're done. Nope. Thank you for joining nope. us on this double long 
Waypoint <laughs> or Waypoints episode is what I said. Waypoint. I mean, that's, that's what this is. It's become Waypoints. Anyway, I feel like this could still go up on. <laughs> it might. Yeah. We'll, tell me how long it is after we're done. We'll figure yeah. it out. Uh, I hope everyone has a great uh, week. I already said bye once. I'm gonna eat fucking lunch. Yeah. Uh, bye. Yeah. Lunch is good. Uh, but in the meantime, our thanks to Two Mellow for the track Slide Asleep off the album After Midnight. You can find that at twomellowmakes.bandcamp.com. You can keep up with all of us at waypoint.vice.com. I'm Rob Zachney. You can find me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Danielle, where can people find you online? At Danielle or I. Austin. At Austin underscore Walker. You can follow Kato on Twitter at some kind of account. Wow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a, a underscore Kato underscore appears. Yes, you thank go. you. It's like a Pokemon um, thing. Kato, what do you think about this new Pokemon? Uh, the the Oh, fuckers. the I fucked your mom Look. Pokemon? What? What? Yeah, the I uh, fucked What? I fucked your mom Pokemon. That's his uh, real name. I missed I made a He he fucked your mom. Look, Mike Drucker. I mean, good for her. Why I does this Pokemon that's... look like it just walked out of your mom's bedroom? Mm-hmm. That's not its real name. You though. can't deny that. That's a tweet. <laughs> I, I mean, I think you said what? that was its official name. How often? Mike Drucker doesn't have the power to name. Like, it's not like it's not like Nintendo's like shit. Drucker just posted. Oh, uh, you know, the, he did used to work for Nintendo. The, so, you know, I think he there's still a has, connection. He could call him that favor. Oh, Fine, God. just call him Daddy Pokemon. I don't think this. I don't think that this Pokemon, Pokemon is Daddy. No, I don't think that's all true. Daddy. I all need to see time. a picture of this. Okay, I'm gonna. I think Rob, when you see a picture, you're gonna know this is Daddy the Pokemon. I can't believe this. I guess the eyebrows. Sir Daddy. I see That's his name. I posted it. I posted the photo. That sword is so what? big. Wait. I don't know that leak. I buy that. I, you know, we that's all a, have. That's, that's, that's where, one of the wait, Angry Birds. Where did birds. you put it? In that's one of the Angry chat. Birds. Yeah, it's a far fetch. <laughs> it is one of the Angry Birds. Angry Bird it's is an angry bird. I knew that's, that's where I was. Okay. Like, trying to place those eyebrows. It's an Angry Bird with an onion sword. It does have Yeah, it's got a leak. It's uh, good. Uh, no, it's in the eyes, though. You see where those eyes have been. Look at those <laughs> eyes. Come on. Rob, there's another tweet <laughs> that we need to talk about before we go. All right. I guess I have a new job. Yeah. yeah. Congratulations, director. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, apparently, Remedy found out about the crummets. Oh, the no. board found out about the crummets. The board. <laughs> yeah, the board. They're subscribed and Glad to know. like them and expect crummets <laughs> slash and bread pancakes slash bricks of cheese. Bricks of cheese. <laughs> I'm so glad. <laughs> Thanks for the shout out. So yeah. I'm you can go to Remedy Games. I'm not sure what to do with this this information <laughs> or, or what what my new obligations are as director um, with the service crummets. But I guess. Uh, <laughs> Like like Miss Fa- Miss Faden, I will figure it out as I go. What, 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 is, uh, what does the power of the crummets give you? I don't know. Is it Remedy Games yeah. or Control Remedy that reached Remedy this? Games? Okay, I think good. is yeah. the one who responded. I th- yeah, I'm trying to may- think. Maybe something what, to do yeah. with density. You already have a shield. I was thinking a shield. What's mm. the actual shield object of power and control? Yeah, you know, honestly, density is not a bad idea. Like the crummet gives you the power to like collapse things into a small like micro singularity. Yeah. Mm, that's pretty good. Or like you could combine it with the with the with the uh, throw ability, like crush the thing to make it a deadlier bullet to deal more damage oh, or something like, you like that. You shape it. Yeah. You take a whatever it is you picked up, including a body. Yeah. And then <laughs> and then you turn oh. it into a crummet. Yeah. Shaped object. Oh. <laughs> 
It could be. I need to play this game. You should play that game. And you should have some crummets. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I look. I tried the uh, sandwich thing. It worked out well. Good job. Nice. Hell yeah. 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 Place crummets sandwich. You can't split them. <laughs> they can't be split. But just so I just a crummet on top, a crummet on bottom, and egg and cheese in between. Just like a delicious. Uh, can't be destroyed. Amazing. <laughs> I love Speaking of delicious things, I want to eat lunch, so yeah. we should go to the post pod. Yeah. All right. Hope you've enjoyed the break, everybody. Please be sure to rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice if it allows such a thing. I think we're a five-star podcast, but it's not for me to say. Uh, I think this one definitely has a five-star runtime. Uh, we'll be back again with Waypoint Radio probably next week. Until then, do not give in to astonishment. Now you should, because now we're recording. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> so Rob, you want to come in like waypoints? Waypoints come in? Yeah. Okay, cool. All right. Uh, should we just go on 18? Sure. I felt good. Oh, that was a good clap. Yeah. I'm All airplane right. moded. Are bad claps Patrick's fault? Oh. And they might be. <laughs> Investigative reporting. <laughs> it might be. All right. And I'm assuming, like, this I, is going to be the lead in segment, yes, and then the NFL exactly, stuff comes in later. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. Right. Exactly that, Rob. Perfect. I just realized we did not talk through it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> 